Welcome to What a Movie, an occasional podcast where two medieval scholars sit through movies about the Middle Ages and then talk about them. I'm Andy. And I'm John. And as promised, this time around, we watched The 13th Warrior. It's a, uh, it's a big slice of late 90s cheese from director John McTiernan and lead actor Antonio Banderas. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it's based on the Michael Crichton book Eaters of the Dead, which in turn is based on Beowulf. More or less, yes. So this is the second of our series on Beowulf movies. We're still in 1999 yes, somehow, are. since there were two Beowulf movies made yes, that there year. was. Although I think uh, this one was actually made long before. I, it got caught up in production hell or something like that. And Yeah, yeah. It, 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 was, it took about two years yeah, to be released so after So technically, filming, yeah. one, one could say that this is the first yeah. of the Beowulf movies of 1999. Uh, not according to the box okay, office. Okay, well... <laughs> But I don't think that would take much. <laughs> gonna be gonna be hard to limbo under that particular. Bar. Yes, it would. But okay, tell tell us a little bit about it. What's going on here? Well, uh, this is this is as you said, it's a story that's been kicking around for a while. Um, Eaters of the Dead was published in 1976, and it took 23 years to bring it to the screen. And meanwhile, the rest of the entertainment industry had caught up to the idea, and so when it finally came out, it came out amid a cloud of Beowulf movies. <laughs> well, the backstory here is that the book was supposedly written on a bet after Crichton and a friend argued over whether Beowulf was too dull or confusing for modern readers to enjoy. Now, Crichton is supposed to have produced this book as a way to update the story and give it mass market appeal, which I guess that's what we're going to evaluate. Which, yeah, I mean, it kind of did because it was a pretty popular book when it, it came out. but. Yeah, yeah, you know, it did pretty well. I mean, it's a Crichton book, so, you know, I kind of want to imagine. Is it something that your parents read to Uh, you when you were a kid? Sit down, little Johnny. uh, No, I actually actually read it for the first time in in grad school. In grad school, okay. I've never read it myself. It's a... It's not fantastic. You know, I I tried to read... uh, What's it called? Timefall or Time... Time Timeline. When I was in high school, uh, after Jurassic Park and stuff like that, and and it was so bad... Yeah, no, that's a uh, that by the way is a movie that I'm going to want to add to our list at some point. <laughs> the film version of that is just astounding. Well, bad. it's not that much better than the book. So, yeah, you know, once I tried Timeline, <laughs> I thought to myself, I don't really want to try other things. Though people have repeatedly told Fair me I should enough. read Eaters of the Dead, I have snobbishly refused. It's 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 good fun, you know. I mean, I think I think it adds something to know to know Beowulf pretty well when you read it. You kind of can you know you can play the game of like looking yeah, for the references. Yeah, well, why would someone do that? I, I can't imagine why. Uh, <laughs> what a waste of time. Anyway, I know. Uh, so what we're going to do here is <laughs> explain a bit about the context for the movie. In other words, exactly what we're talking about is a waste of time. Yes. Uh, we're going to walk our way through the plot and then maybe answer a few silly questions about yeah. it. So should we uh, do all that? Yep. A man might be thought wealthy. If someone were to draw the story of his deeds, that they may be remembered. Such a man might be thought wealthy, indeed. Well, the 13th Warrior was released on August 27th, 1999. It was direct. It was kind of directed by John yeah. McTiernan, sort of. Uh, we'll get to that. 
It stars Antonio Banderas as Ahmad Ibn Fatlan, uh, Vladimir Ulyich as a kind of Beowulf figure. Well, his name is Bulvi. Uh, Diane Venora as Queen Welu, uh, closest to Queen Welthau. Uh Suzanne Crowbaugh as the mother of the Wendall, mother of Grendel. And a large number of actors as Grendel. A very of. large number. Uh, we'll explain that later. Yeah. Um, now, this month, August 99, was a tough month. Uh, this is the same month that the Iron Giant, Mystery Men, Detroit Rock City, Broke Down Palace, The Thomas Crown Affair, and The Sixth Sense were all released. Mm. This, the Thomas Crown Affair, by the way, also directed by John McTiernan. Interesting. Well, John, uh, so I, do you know yeah. uh, where I was in August 1999? Um, I know where I was. I was at UConn uh, in, starting you my were already there. Wow. grad okay. school. Where were you? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, I was in Vladivostok uh, just oh, in right. my, uh, the beginnings of my training. Maybe not the beginnings. I was in part of the That's training right. for, uh, mm-hmm. for Peace Corps over there, learning Russian, learning, you know, teaching skills and things like that. Um, but uh, my lovely wife and I, took a little break from that to go to the movie theater in Vladivostok <laughs> to see The 13th Warrior in Russian. Uh-huh. Yeah. So nice. uh, when nice. I watched it recently, it was the first time I've ever seen the movie in English. Is yeah. that true? Yeah, I haven't seen oh, wow. it since I saw it in the theater. That's maybe a good indicator of <laughs> where this is all of going. what you thought of it. <laughs> well, as usual, I've seen uh, it far more than I should and far more often yeah. than I should. Um, it, uh, it didn't make a big splash when it came out. I mean, I'm actually kind of surprised that you managed to track it down. And it was see in a big it, theater uh, and it was America. one of, this is like back before we served beers and stuff in theaters in, uh, in America, or at least as mm-hmm. far as I knew. Um, but you could get beers and pizzas and all kinds of, it was like a really cool theater that we went to nice. in nice. Russia. Oh, very nice. Well, here in America, nobody much liked it. Um, it got about a third. It has about a thirty-three percent critic score on Rotten. That's Tomatoes. not very good. Uh, no, it's not. I mean, it's better than the zero that uh, Space Beowulf was carrying. Well, that's because uh, nobody's seen it. Right, that's fair. Uh, Roger Ebert reviewed this movie. By of the course, way. he did. So it, it did. It did get on his radar. Well, Antonio uh, Banderas was coming off of it. Zorro and things like that. Well, right, right. Uh, well, he gave this uh, one and a half stars. Um, he said. Uh, This film shows every sign of a production run amok. There's plenty of cash on the screen, but little thought. And the film lumbers from one expensive set piece to another without making us care. That's funny. Do you think the set pieces were that expensive? I mean, there are times when I I was sort of marveling at how much they'd bothered to build for this. It's all made of wood. I mean, yeah, but... Somebody spent a while building some of these sets that aren't really on screen for very long. No, they're not. Yeah. Uh, well, and, you know, I will say that that whatever the money got spent on, he's right about the expense. This movie cost somewhere between 90 and $100 million to make in 1999. That's a lot of money. I mean, Space Beowulf did it's hardly, hardly spent a, a fraction of that. We decided it spent about $3 million, something yeah. like that. Well, that was three, the claim. Three and a half. Um, yeah, so the the most expensive movie this year, remember we established, is Wild Wild West at two hundred million. Ooh. So this movie is is at least a Wild West, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, I don't know that I don't know that you can really tell that by looking at it. Well, 
It's exciting, though, isn't it? There you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, it made $61 million in the theaters. That's not very good. Uh, it's not great, given given the expense of making it. But, uh, you know, it's not it's not a complete disaster. Yeah. But Touchstone Pictures definitely took a bit of a bath on it. I think I, think I read that it kind of, with the international, which I was included in the international mm-hmm. sales, uh, I think it, there you it go. broke even, more or less. Or actually, oh, no, it, was, it made a good slight profit. Made a slight profit. Uh, well, I'm sure it has by now because it's actually got a bit of a following on streaming. Well, I'm just talking about the the year that it came out, 1999. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, part of the expense ended up being the direction. Uh, John McTiernan, uh, the the director who's known for directing what Die Hard, Predator, The Hunt for Red October. I mean, you know, yeah. this is a guy who had a real a real resume going into this film. Yeah, and you would assume he had uh, a real vision for this film. Well, and it's the film. It's the kind of film that he knew how to make. Yeah, you know, he he'd been making these, you know, big splashy movies, often like uh, like Predator, set in uh, rural in in sort of remote areas where you know you got to do a lot of kind of logistics just to make the film. Um, he he made this film. He delivered a completed film, but after a few test screenings, uh, the studio decided that rewrites and reshoots were needed. But instead of bringing McTiernan back, because apparently he was not happy about the request for, re- for reshoots, they decided to bring in the author of the book, Michael Crichton, mm-hmm. to do some reshoots. And, uh, and Crichton so, had some experience directing things before. A little right? bit. But, I mean, this is just a wild thing to do. Yeah. You know, you're, you're doing a film of a novel. And so for the reshoots, you bring in the writer of the novel? I, I, I don't know that I've ever heard of a precedent for that. Well, but again, this is this is Michael Crichton we're talking about, and and in the nineties, I mean, you, you know, you know, he didn't direct Jurassic Park, though, right? I do, but I think he okay. got carte blanche to do what he wanted. I think he probably did. After yes. That. Uh, well, and you know, it is it is on the record that no one really seems to have enjoyed the experience of making this film. Well, it's uh, very muddy and wet. It's muddy. It's wet. It was apparently somewhat dangerous. Uh, one of the actors, Dennis Storoy, um, almost drowned uh, in one scene, yeah. and apparently Antonio Banderas dove in and actually had to save him uh, as he was sort of in the middle of drowning uh, on camera. <laughs> the things we do to shoehorn in a uh, a Beowulf swimming Grendel's mother's <laughs> cave kind of scenario, uh, and of course, then there's also, and this is sort of the most famous part of the film. Omar Sharif, who you know in the 1990s was kind of an you know an elder statesman of 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 film, uh, he's in this movie for about the first 15 minutes or so, and he hated making this movie so much he retired from acting. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, <laughs> which is uh, as he's really yeah. impressive to uh, dislike your experience so very much that this you is, just this is Sean Connery making uh, uh, extraordinary gentleman levels of of disgust. Yeah. Uh, Omar Sharif said about this after my small role in the 13th warrior I said to myself let us stop this nonsense <laughs> these meal tickets that we do because it pays well yeah bad pictures are very humiliating it is terrifying to have to do the dialogue from bad scripts to mm-hmm. to face a director who does not know what he is doing in a film so bad that it is not even worth exploring wow well that there's so much packed into that one little quote isn't there Oh my gosh! This was this was not a happy camper. Uh, but I mean the the uh, the insult to McTiernan there because I assume that's who he's talking about. That's who he. Would I don't actually with. know whether he's talking about McTiernan or Crichton there. I mean, you have to assume it's McTiernan, right? I don't know. Probably I, I, here. I'm thinking they shot it chronologically, which doesn't really make a whole right. Lot that doesn't that's how it works. Yeah, but yeah. Um, 
But if it is McTiernan, that's kind of wild. I mean, he had made very big budget successful films prior prior to this. Yeah. But maybe the idea that the act, well, that Omar Sharif had and the idea that McTiernan has mm-hmm. who's going for a may, perhaps a more action mood film. I don't I don't know. Right. But maybe their vision for what it was supposed to be is very sure. different. Well, it's, you know, it's like Alec Guinness being on record as thinking the Star Wars was garbage. Yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, most guys... of the Star Wars actors in that first one thought that the script was ridiculous. And, and uh, did yeah. Harrison Ford say something like uh, it, it looks good on the page, but it's impossible to say something like that? Yeah. You, yeah. You can write you can write this crap, George, but you can't say it, I believe. is the quote. Yes. Yes. Well, and, and uh. you can I, I think if you you know, once you know that quote from uh, from Omar Sharif, you can kind of hear him struggling with some of the dialogue because yeah. at parts it's well, so awkward. We're gonna we're gonna talk about the early dialogue in this film. Yeah, uh, we'll get to that. Uh, so the uh, the other thing I wanted to mention, we talked about the novel Eaters of the Dead, uh, but um, people might or might not know that the Eaters of the Dead, when it was published, is presented as the translation of a manuscript. Uh, yeah, right? it's there's it's a little sort of controversy. These, right, invented manuscript things. There actually is a manuscript, a medieval manuscript, uh, uh, by a guy named Ahmed ibn Fadlan, but Crichton invents a manuscript called the Ahmad Tusi Manuscript uh, and presents it as having been translated by Frau Stolas. It's a great trick. Uh, I mean, it is. I mean, you know, Crichton just made this up. Uh, by the way, Frau and Dolas are both words that mean fraud. Yeah. Uh, but apparently, still today, the University of Oslo, which is uh, where the manuscript is supposed to be archived, they have a form letter that they have to send out to people who ask to see the manuscript in which they explain that it's fictional and that they've been the victim of a fraud. <laughs> which is kind of a harsh way to put it. I think I'm just saying, it's you great. know, sorry, it's not actually real. He made it up. You don't have to call it a fraud. Right, yeah. Well, I, I just love that uh, Michael Crichton pulls a Thomas More's Utopia, like yep. you know, claiming this this lengthy, interesting history for it, or a, or a Gulliver's <laughs> Travels uh, um, yep. kind of thing. Uh, but it's all, it's all fictional. Shows his literary mind at work. So applause yes. for that, Michael Crichton. Yes. And then the, the other point is that um, this is a film in which a man from the Middle East, from Baghdad, uh, dra- travels north to visit a community of Northmen, he keeps calling them, uh, Scandinavians. Yeah. But I just want to briefly put in a caveat for anybody who watches this film, that the accents, or rather the accent melange of the characters in this film are a little bit disconcerting when you first hear it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, among the titular 13 warriors, we have, by my count, two Americans, a couple of Norwegians, several Swedes, a Scotsman, an Irishman, an Englishman, and a couple of Canadians. And each and every one of them is speaking in their own natural accent. Well, yeah, and uh, just just the name of the Beowulf character, which is right. s- spelled something like Bulwife or Bulwif. Yeah, but they say it as Bulvai. Yeah, Bulvai, or but different people say it kind of differently. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and so it's a little, yeah. it's a little odd. But let's go with the idea that this Viking troop is is made up of warriors from exactly. different That's regions, exactly different what dialects, I was going to say. Yes, different languages. Yes, you have to pretend that um, you know that Canada and uh, America are both <laughs> regions from which Vikings might have come. Uh-huh. But otherwise, it all sort of fits together, and that's of course ignoring the fact that. Our uh, Arabic POV narrator is speaking with a very clear Spanish accent through the entire film. Oh, he was—he's uh, a Spaniard. You, you might have heard. Um, it's <laughs> I had no sort of idea. doing his own idiolect. 
Um, and of course, he's alongside Omar Sharif, who's actually Egyptian. And so, you know, it's just really, it's just really putting into stark relief how not Middle Eastern Antonio Banderas' yes. accent yes. is. But uh, you just have to, have to if you're going to watch this film, and I, I actually am going to tip my hand a little bit here. I'm going to say, you should watch this film. Uh, but you just kind of have to roll with that, that nobody involved decided to care about a sort of verisimilitude of accent. Right, yeah. Uh, all right, are we ready to dive into this thing? Oh yeah, I thought we I thought we already did, but you oh, want to no, now dive into the, the summary the of yet. the of yeah. The we haven't plot. started the film yet. Okay. The story. Hey, 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 hey. Wait, wait, wait! Those manning the boat. Who are they? Northmen. Keep moving and keep quiet. Ah. Why? Are they dangerous? It depends. Maybe they'll let us go, or maybe they'll kill us. So we st- we we press play on our little DVD player, uh, and the first thing we see in this film is the title card. Touchstone Pictures presents a Crichton McTiernan production. So right off the bat, uh, they're just putting that up there for everybody that this <laughs> that there was some contention as to whose film this was. Well, but the unsuspecting viewer is not going to know that. We just know that these two teamed up and and put something together. Right. It's, a, it's a partnership. Yeah. Right. Yes, two great minds. Uh, so the, the movie opens up on a Viking ship under sail in a raging storm. Um, and this somehow manages to be a somewhat understated and solemn moment, which really shouldn't be possible, uh, given that it is a ship th- being thrown around in the middle of a storm in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. But one of the odd things about this film, I think, is how often it underplays its dramatic tension. Mm. Uh, eventually, the camera sort of wandering around the ship finds Antonio Banderas, wrapped in a black cloak and huddled up against the gunwale of the ship. Uh, in, in voiceover, he introduces himself. I am Ahmed ibn Fahlan, ibn al-Abbas, ibn Rashid, ibn Hamad. And things were not always thus. And suddenly we're in flashback mode, right? getting Ibn Fahlan's story. So this movie, in true 90s fashion, does the action beginning and the I bet you're wondering how I ended up in this crazy situation smash cut. Right. It's okay. great. Uh, is it great? Andy, do we want to do we want to talk about Ahmed Ibn Fatlan at all? Or are we good? Sure. So Ahmed Ibn Fatlan was a 10th century Arab traveler and scholar who is best known, at least among scholars of the Viking Age, for his detailed account of his journey to the Volga Bulgars and his encounters with the Rus. Mm-hmm. He documented these experiences in a travel log that provides firsthand accounts of the various cultures customs and uh, encounters that he had while participating in a diplomatic embassy from the Abbasid Caliphate in the early 920s. His account provides valuable insights both into the medieval Islamic world of that time and the societies that he encountered while traveling. Ibn Fatlan's work is particularly renowned for its vivid descriptions of a people he calls the Rus, though there is some controversy over who exactly this group is and whether or not they're even Vikings. But that's a debate for other scholars. Uh, what is important here is that this film is using Ibn Fatlan's account of those interactions with the Rus as the starting point for this adaptation of the Beowulf story. Mm-hmm. Oh, wonderful. Uh, excellent. Well, anyway, it turns out that Antonio Ibn Fatlan ran into some trouble in Baghdad when he fell in love with one of the wives of a local aristocrat. Um, and so he gets himself sent into what is essentially exile as a diplomat. Right. Uh, he's, and- a- he's accompanied by an older man, uh, Melchizedek, uh, who's a family friend and is also Omar Sharif. 
uh, the two of them are pretty upfront about their feelings about their new assignment. Uh, Ahmed's voiceover lists off various so-called barbaric people of Europe over shots of the two of them riding camels across barren lands. I was banished from my home and from all that I knew. So I journeyed by camelback many months into the lands of barbarian peoples, accompanied by Melchizedek, an old friend of my father, through the lands of the Ogurs, the Hazars, and the Bulgars, into the lands of murderous bandits called Tartars, who attack caravans, slaughtering everyone. The Tartars are coming! The Tartars are coming! Uh, finally, they get to the land of the Tartars, and they're almost attacked by Tartar brigands, but the Tartars suddenly break off the attack when a Viking longship sails into view on a nearby river. Mm-hmm. The caravan they're traveling with run away too, and so now we know everyone is afraid of the Northmen. Ahmed and uh, and Omar Sharif stay in place, though, because as Ahmed says, I am an ambassador, damn it! I am supposed to talk to people. You may yet have the opportunity. The two of them follow the ship where they f- to where they find an encampment of Scandinavians, uh, and they try speaking to them in Arabic and in Greek. Uh, Omar Sharif is a linguist. They finally find one Viking who speaks Latin, uh, and this is Herger the Joyful, played mm-hmm. by Dennis Storhoy. Uh, we'll get to know Herger a little bit later on. For now, uh, Helger drunkenly explains they can't talk to the king because the king is dead, and in fact the two of them are crashing his funeral feast. So, you know, slightly awkward. So here, here's what uh, I noticed about that uh, that scene yeah. right away. As they enter that tent, um, you have the classic Viking entering the hall. It's the introduction to the yes. Viking scene. It is people laughing, people drinking, people shouting, mm-hmm. fighting, women on laps. The funny thing about this is, you know, we've read so many sagas at this point, and we know that a lot of times in the halls... What's going on is a quiet game of chess or hneftafel. Yes. <laughs> While everyone else is just kind of sitting around relaxing. It's very much this, about this idea that, yeah, yeah, no, the, the idea that these halls are sort of a constant party uh, really flies in the face of what the, the Vikings or that what the Scandinavians said about themselves. Uh, but in this case, it's a funeral feast, so we can we can give them the benefit of the doubt. Well, and also to be fair, the uh, the the Christian authors of the sagas in the uh, 13th century, 14th century, mm-hmm. they're not really going to be reporting on the ragers that they like to get up to as right. no, representations of, of uh, <laughs> saga age parties. <laughs> right, right. No, fair enough. Uh, well, so in the middle of this party, uh, Herger introduces them to Bulvai, uh, who's a potential successor to the king, uh, and obviously is Beowulf. Yeah, uh, and this this is when the movie starts going much harder than it has to, uh, because they're really determined to demonstrate for us all the linguistic problems that Ibn Fadlan is facing. Uh, Bovai speaks in a sort of Norwegian pidgin, which Herger then translates into Latin, which uh, Melchizedek then translates into Arabic. Uh, and we should have explained already the conceit of this film is that right now Arabic is being rendered as English in the film because. Uh, throughout the film, the the English language is the the POV language of Ahmed Ibn Fadlan. Right, right. Whatever whatever language he's listening in or speaking in is English at that moment in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a really interesting choice, and I think really pays off later on in the film. Yeah, in terms of in terms of playing with a variety of languages, um, it's mm-hmm. it's a clever way of representing that kind of thing. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, and I also like uh, the, so, the multi-linguistic yep. exchange that's going on there. Uh, the, the fact that yep. Melchizedek is is speaking Greek to a Scandinavian who understands it but speaks back to mm-hmm. him in Latin and then is being translated into Arabic. That's a cool, yep. very, as a medievalist, yeah. um, as a citizen of the world, uh, I can appreciate that kind of attention to detail that you don't see very right. often in international exchanges in film. Yes. Yeah. No, I think it, it, it speaks to it, an awareness of kind of the size and variety of the medieval world that uh, that many films ignore in favor of a kind of bland kind of pan Eurocentric Renfair right, style right. idea of the Middle Ages. Now, now, John, you read um, Eaters of the Dead a, a long time ago, yeah, I guess. Um, it's a very long time ago. Do, do you happen to remember, is this is that kind of attention to that detail part of the, the uh, novel? Well, I think if I remember correctly, and people feel free to correct me on this, but as I remember it, uh, the the stuff that is not spoken in a language that Ahmed can understand is mostly reported as secondarily. That he speaks and then it's translated for it. They don't really give okay, the so standard novel much. style. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there may be some, I think there are some lines that are given in, uh, in a Germanic language and in Latin, but... Okay. Um, often he sort of gets around it by just having the other person speak and then it's translated. Gotcha. So this is a feature uh, of the film, which is kind of... Uh, yeah, yeah. Kind of cool. Um, yeah. Uh, so anyway, during this introduction, uh, Bolvai foils an assassination attempt um, while he's talking to uh, Ahmed without really even breaking stride in the conversation, um, which, you know, sort of is Ahmed's introduction to um, Scandinavian life. He realizes he's not in Kansas anymore. So another thing that I really liked about this scene was the attention to storytelling as part mm-hmm. of the culture. So yeah. they invite this this foreigner to tell a story. They, they need a story for the hall. Um, and this speaks to the idea of the kind of the origins of Beowulf, which is mm-hmm. something that the origins of Beowulf, the, the, the literary product. Um, and that's something that this this film is aware of and and playing yeah. with as we see as the well the, and and pays off later on in the film yeah absolutely. yeah pays off so and the other thing that I really like about this moment is that Ahmed takes the role of the shop in the hall who is telling the story of creation. Recite the poem, the tale. Surely you remember something. <laughs> In the beginning, the earth was void, and the spirit of God passed above <laughs> Right, well, yeah, I mean, first of all, we have to assume that everybody in the hall is just politely listening to this guy speaking Arabic at them, yes. nobody in the hall speaks. Yeah. Uh, but the, it's interrupted when uh, Bovai has to foil an assassination attempt on himself, um, he kind of does that without really breaking stride and without even really f- for more than a moment breaking eye contact right. with Ahmed uh, and just, it just settles back down to hear the rest of the story. These Vikings, uh, but I think th- such violent people. Well, that's just it. I think this is the moment we're meant to understand that Ahmed realizes he's not in Kansas anymore. And the But the problem is that, you know, this, to do that, they really kind of go hard on the idea that Viking life is violent life. Yeah. And, you know, again, as we've, as we talked about, that it's, it's, we know that that is occasionally true. But it's not the default mode of like every event all the time. Right, right. And it's also interesting that that uh, the presentation of the world that Ahmed comes from is mm-hmm. one of wealth and splendor. Very, very clean. A mm-hmm. um, lot of silks, 
gold, um, but also a land of education and scholarship, mm-hmm. uh, linguistics, science, you know, that kind of stuff. Yep. So this world that he's in, in these, in these, these dirty tents with these violent Vikings, um, it's a, it's a, it's a culture shock for him. Yeah. Well, and carrying on that concept of violence, right, the next thing that happens is that they put the dead king onto a ship along with a living woman and then set the ship on fire. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's presented to him as, well, this is a good thing because they're both going to go into the afterlife together. Lo, there do I see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother, my sisters, and my brothers. Lo, there do I see the line of my people back to the beginning. Lo, they do call to me. They bid me take my place among them in the halls of Valhalla, where the brave may live forever. She will travel with him. You will not see this again. It is the old way. These scenes, I, I love watching these scenes because they are a modern interpretation of this real historical figure's journey mm-hmm. up the Volga into the land of the Rus and his encounters with right. the Rus. And so the the prayer or the speech that the woman gives is taken directly from yep. uh, from the text. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm, I have uh, with me here the the Ibn Fatlan, uh, the Ahmed Ibn Fatlan and the land of darkness and travelers in the far north. It's the Penguin edition of this narrative um on on page 52 it has the the section called the slave girl gazes on paradise and it tells this story of of this burial of the of the Mm -hmm. um this burial of the king and i'll just read uh this section to you because i think it's it it captures nicely what uh michael Crichton, tiernan the makers of this film are, are really playing with um, you know, he's watching all of this, uh, this, this process of their raising her up and down, raising her up and down, bringing food and different things. And Ahmed says, I asked the interpreter what she had been doing. And he replied, the first time they lifted her up, she said, there I see my father and mother. And the second time she said, there I see all my dead relatives sitting. And the third time she said, there I see my master sitting in paradise and paradise is green and beautiful. There are men with him and young people, and he is calling me. Take me to him. And they went off with her towards the boat. She took off the two bracelets that she was wearing and gave them both to the old woman, who was known as the angel of death, who was to kill her. She stripped off the two anklets and and so on and so forth, and then the the uh, the woman ends up, you know, eventually killing her and laying her down mm-hmm. with her with her master. Um, this is what uh, the the scene that you're watching in the film is capturing is this very very right. old 10th century narrative um, that's describing what is um, one of the only contemporary descriptions of a Viking mm-hmm. funeral. Uh, of course, it is a Rus funeral, um, so we I don't know how right. far we can extend that. And there's, you know whole books to be written about that kind of thing. Well, and of course, right on the heels of this, you know, fealty to the 10th century text, we get this scene the next morning when uh, Ahmed looks outside and sees a boy standing on the prow of a ship that's arrived. Yeah. And it turns out that in this movie, Scandinavians are so governed by the supernatural that this is a way of being polite because he's giving them time to decide whether or not he's real. Yes. Because they don't know if the things they see are real. Mm. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Th- there's another cool moment from the uh, Ahmed Ibn Fadlan narrative um, where we have the uh, the various Vikings in the in the tents uh, getting a bowl in the morning. Mm-hmm. I think it's the morning after this big Viking funeral. I was about to talk about this, but go ahead. Yeah. So uh, what we see is this woman bringing a bowl around, and each of the Vikings kind of like they. It's at, at first you're like, oh, they're just washing their faces. They wash their face, but then they're like blowing right. their nose in it, and it's being passed around, <laughs> and they're like putting it in their mouth and stuff like that. Well, that of course does come from even Fatlan's uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's yep. it's on page uh, 47 of this Penguin edition. It's called disgusting habits. So I'll uh, read this one to you as well. Every day without fail, they wash their faces and their heads with the dirtiest and filthiest water there could be. A young serving girl comes every morning with breakfast and with it a great basin of water. She proffers it to her master who washes his hands and face in it as well as his hair. He washes and disentangles his hair using a comb there in the basin. And then he blows his nose and spits and does every filthy thing imaginable in the water. And when he finished, when he and when he is finished, the servant carries the bowl to the man next to him. She goes on passing the basin round from one to another until she has taken it to all the men in the house in turn. And each of them blows his nose and spits and washes his hair and his face in this basin. Yeah. And so when it comes to Antonio Banderas, the the Ipifatlan character, yeah, he not so politely <laughs> pushes it away. <laughs> Well, that's right after. I mean, the the, the actor playing uh, Herger the Joyful uh, gets the ball right before Ahmed and really goes for it. Yes, he blows his nose with a noise I have never heard come out <laughs> of a human face, and it goes on for several seconds, yeah. long enough to sort of cut away to Antonio Banderas reacting to really it. hammer the point uh, home. Right, it's it's an astounding noise. I I don't know whether it's diegetic or whether they added it later. I really hope that he he did this himself. Because <laughs> uh, it's impressive. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so it turns out this boy who's arrived and may or may not be real has come to ask Bulvai for help. Uh, he's an emissary from Hrothgar's kingdom, which is being attacked by monsters. That's monsters, plural. Yeah. Uh, but no one there will say the name of the evil that threatens them, so so that's all we learn about it for now. Uh, Bulvai calls for a seer to cast bones for what to do, and the seer is called the Angel of Death, by the way. Um, and an actress who's very clearly enjoying herself makes a complete meal out of crawling around and studying the bones she's thrown on the floor mm-hmm. before announcing that 13 men must go and face the danger. Uh, Omar Sharif explains that this is because there are 13 months in the Vikings calendar. Sure there are. <laughs> sure, why not? Uh, why that's relevant is never explained, but well, there you go. 13 it, it, why months, it's 13 relevant warriors. is it... it it makes their culture more tangible and real, even though it's not based on anything, or at least anything well, that I know. Right, of. it's not, but it's also. But more to the point, what does that have to do with the number of warriors you need for the journey? It's, it's just it's a not quick at all reference. Clear why it's, it's? Yeah, I know. Thirteen I know, bones, thirteen warriors for the thirteen months of the year. Uh, it's anyway, kind of unsurprisingly, Bulvai volunteers to be the first man of the group. Uh, other men then jump up out of the crowd one by one, identifying themselves as the second man, the third man, and so on. Uh, Herger the Joyful calls the 11th position, so he'll be along on the trip. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when 12 men have volunteered, the seer stops everything and announces that the 13th man must be no Northman. 
And suddenly, everyone's staring at Antonio Banderas. And, and, you know, Uh, if I'm Antonio Banderas, I'm looking at uh, Omar Sharif. uh, Well, as he does, (laughs) uh, because Omar Sharif then says, explains that Ahmed is the 13th man. And Antonio Banderas, in, I think, his best line reading of the entire film, heroically responds, what the hell are you saying? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Um, yeah. And and what what's what's yeah. good about the, the the payoff of that moment is we we've, we've got for the past you know five to ten minutes been introduced to just how brutal these men are right. and how different they are from from Ahmed's experience mm-hmm. and now suddenly he is being thrown into their gang and right. into a a, right. a a terrifying mission with them. Well, and because of course there's no logical way that he would get convinced to do this. We just skip to a sequence when they're all getting ready to leave. We just yada yada the part where Ahmed gets talked into going on the trip. Uh, and so we get we get a sequence. Uh, one of the Vikings begins woofing at Ahmed's horse. Uh, and Herger explains that they're all laughing about how small the horse is. And that only an Arab would ride a dog to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, Omar Sharif now says goodbye since he's not going with them and he's retiring from acting. Uh, and yells out, go with God. And Ahmed rolls his eyes at the sky and mutters, are you listening? Yeah. Which is pretty good. <laughs> There's some legitimately fun moments in this movie. I guess so, yeah. Will a sheep be long to snake up to steal teeth of 12 horses? So come at the best. So come at the best. No hand, Billy, go. Rook the hand to them. Well, so now there's a problem, which is that Ahmed is alone on a journey with a bunch of Norwegians. Yes. He doesn't speak Norwegian, and no one else there speaks Arabic. And there's no teachers uh, that are willing to no, take him under no. their wing. Uh, and he has no Duolingo. Ha- right, exactly. Um, and they don't even know his name. I mean, when they ask Ahmed's name, right. he gets as far as, my name is Ahmed Ibn Fadlan Ibn Ablabas, uh, before Herger gets bored and repeats back, Ibn. Yes, which is what Well, Ibn he does means. try to explain. He says, no, 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 no. Ibn means son of. He says, Ibn. And everybody just agrees that his name is Ibn. Yeah, yeah. But they don't <laughs> ever call him that, really. Which, by the way, no, I know, but I've actually looked at uh, websites that have done, like, reviews and think pieces about this film, and they will actually refer to his character as Ibn. No way. Uh, because people don't <laughs> understand that joke. <laughs> the, the film begins with him saying his I name. Know. And it, I Spoiler, it ends with him saying his name again. So, yep. yep. Well, the problem is that in between, they mostly call him little brother. Yeah. Uh, or the Arab. But they don't, the, his name doesn't get used much in the film. But he definitely uses his name. It's not, it's not a does, mystery. Whenever he's given he a chance. <laughs> and he's the only uh, historical figure in the whole film. Right. Well, I mean, are you, are you suggesting that Bulvi is not a. <laughs> Bulvi uh, is a fictional so, character? We we uh we get a montage to solve this link language problem. We get a montage of Ahmed watching as the men speak to one another in Norwegian. Yeah, and I actually I gotta say, obviously this is cheesy as hell, but it's really well done cheese. Uh, as the days pass, the words they speak begin to contain more and more English, as Ahmed begins to understand them. <laughs> We can find some geese. So then he says, Do not foretell me, wife, for I will get no supper when I come home tonight. I don't sound like that. <laughs> uh, and finally, one night, they're sitting around the campfire, and that he can understand virtually every word they say. 
And one of the men, uh, Wayath the musician, who's played by Tony Curran, makes a joke about Ahmed's mother, and Ahmed responds by calling him a pig-eating son of a whore. <laughs> uh, and everyone can understand him, because apparently he says that insult in Norwegian. Where did you learn our language? I listened. And that night, uh, now that he can speak, uh, Bovai asks Ahmed if he can draw sounds. Uh, and Ahmed confirms that, yes, he can draw sounds, and he can also speak them back. Yeah, uh, that's kind of silly, I have to say. It, it's, it's very silly, but it's setting up something that does happen later in yeah. the film. I mean, uh, th- this whole sequence but, with the, the language acquisition mm-hmm. piece, while it is a clever <laughs> kind of film shorthand for learning a language over yeah. what has to be... Uh, a decently long journey. They're traveling yeah. from somewhere in the land of the Tartars, right? Mm-hmm. All the way yep. up to presumably Denmark. Denmark, right? It has to be. So it's it's a week yeah. or so. Yeah, a few know. weeks. I don't few know weeks. how long there, but it's not enough time to learn a language. That's for sure. But no, well, no. Ahmed is a he is a student of language in the film, right? He's a he's a poet and scholar. We're told. So, yeah. You know, so presumably, he knows how to learn languages. Sure. But this is this is a controversial amongst the reviewers of the film, uh, especially mm-hmm. in, in, in podcast reviews of the film that, I, that I've been listening to. Um, some people really like this and a lot of people really hate it. I, I think if you're going to deal with this and not just have it be the usual thing of everybody speaks English with different accents. Right. Uh, I think this is about as well as you can handle it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as, uh, I agree. As someone who who likes languages myself, um, this representation of absorbing a language, mm-hmm. it, it's a cool way to do it. Uh, because certainly as you're learning a new language, you don't catch everything. You catch s- phrases, right. words, sounds even that are familiar finally. And then right. slowly those come together. But it takes time. And one thing that I spotted uh, this time, and this is probably, I mean, I'm going to, just say now, this is probably the seventh or eighth time I've seen this movie. Um, but one of the things I spotted this time that I hadn't spotted before, the first words that he understands are actually words that Omar Sharif had translated for him earlier. Hmm. What words? Uh, so it's words like uh, numbers. Okay. He picks up numbers right away. And of course, that whole scene of the first man, the second man, the third man to go on the journey... Uh, Omar Sharif is translating as they're saying mm-hmm. those words. Doesn't he pick up horse pretty quickly, which would make sense? He does, yeah. Yeah, which makes sense because they are making fun of his horse before they leave. Well, and, and also they're riding horses as well. This whole, they well, have yes, horses with them. That. Uh, but it's the, he is picking up, the first words that he picks up are words that he has heard translated before, which is a nice detail. Hmm. Uh, anyway, uh, so now that they can all talk to each other, uh, and and uh, Bulvai has seen Ahmed draw sounds in the sand, uh, the they uh, they the next day begin kind of playing with Ahmed a little bit. You know, they, now that they can talk to him, he's kind of one of the group. Uh, they start calling his horse a dog again, and so we get this whole very odd sequence where uh, Antonio Banderas rides around the camp on his horse, steeple chasing all over the place, just jumping over carts and across streams jumping over a whole horse (laughs) oh yeah jumping over an entire horse and pushing knocking a guy named scaled into the mud Uh, (laughs) uh, um then jokes the dog can jump and everyone enjoys a hearty laugh because 
even Viking warriors enjoy some good wholesome male bonding. Well, and, and again, what they're what they're playing at here is these cultural differences. Yeah, between yeah. the these two um, peoples, um, they have different ways of doing things. Now, what's nice is that they're both effective. They're just different. Sure, sure. Uh, now we smash cut at this point to the scene from the beginning of the film. We finally caught up with that scene of them on a longship yeah. crossing the crossing the uh, the sea. Yeah, and Ahmed I'm not is sure very which uncomfortable. Sea they're meant to be crossing in between the land of the Tartars and Denmark, but well, presumably maybe they're taking a shortcut they, they along a the coast. You know, I, I guess. Um, but, but he does now, ask, "Why are we so far out to sea? Shouldn't we be closer to land?" Right. And right. he's told yeah, it's, uh, it's better out here than by the yeah, shore, is, let me tell this you. This is no day to be close to land. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, a, uh, uh, there's there's even a, a bit of a scene where a friendly Viking named Halfdan the Fat uh, offers to feed Ahmed some stew while Ahmed goes fetal and tries not to throw up his toenails because of the way the ship is flying around. Throw up his toenails? Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I get what you're doing there, but... Uh, so when they reach shore uh, to pay off that earlier bit, Bolvai says, look what I draw and and <laughs> writes in the sand. There is only one God and Muhammad is his prophet, which is what uh, had been drawn for him before by Ahmed. So Bolvai turns out to be a bit of a prodigy and also apparently open to Islam, which is interesting. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Not a, too. Not a detail you'd expect. <laughs> yeah, but Bolvai is, is interested in learning Arabic. Yeah, doesn't go anywhere, though. Uh but then they're confronted by, by the way, also a detail that I did appreciate is that they are writing in Arabic in the sand. Yeah. A lot of films would have just had them writing in English. That's right. Yeah. Or or uh, if they're writing in Arabic, they would have written uh, left to right and been like, look at this. Right. Good point. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, they're they're while they're doing that, they're confronted by a herald who, if folks are familiar with the poem, this is the Coast Guard from yeah. the Wolf. Uh, he challenges them and Bolvi identifies himself as the son of Hugolak. So... Beowulf's gotten a bit of a promotion uh, because normally he's the nephew of Hugolak. Yeah. Uh, they're all brought to Hrothgar's fairly grim-looking town. Uh, and on the way, they pass a muddy road that I'm pretty sure had tire tracks in it. But uh, I'm not going to focus on that. Those are wagon wheels. Thick wagon wheels. Oh, those are really thick wagon wheels with surprisingly deep tread. But okay. <laughs> Uh, the the town uh, when they arrive they notice has no fortifications or fences and as Halfdan says you couldn't keep a cow out of this place. So uh, Hrothgar is not terribly good at defending his people. Correct. He's more uh, of an yeah. He's, he's more he's about offense well. than defense. Is there you Hrothgar. go. There you go. Uh, his hall, by the way, is also a mess. It's also in bad repair, and for that matter, so is Hrothgar. Oh yeah, um, he he he's sitting up there looking like uh, Theoden. Yeah. Yeah, no, he's not in great shape. My lord, this is Bulvai, son of Gilead, come from I across the sea. the man. I said, no matter, boy, I knew his father, and I know him now. Grown to a man. Grown to fine, fine. Uh, he's being played by Sven Walter, who's a, a major Swedish actor. He's uh, He just passed away a couple of years ago, actually. But he's like royalty among Swedish actors. Uh, but this is his only English language film. Hmm, interesting. Uh, so it's not a name people would know, but, you know, people who are familiar with Swedish film, this is a guy they would know. Yeah. I thought uh, it was so interesting watching this, this s- sequence in this film 
uh, of course, being very familiar with the Two Towers film. Mm-hmm. Because it, yeah, it's it, very definitely a Theoden sequence. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the, you know, and of course, Lord of the Rings is is you know this section is based on Beowulf. It's taken directly from right. there. Uh, but almost there's almost like a, a close shot for shot kind of similarity between yep. what we see in this moment of the Thirteenth Warrior and what we later see with uh, Aragorn and everyone's arrival in, uh, yeah, I was gonna in say, Rohan. What's interesting about that is that this film came out three years before the Two Towers. I know, I know, but you can even uh, see you can even see the the positioning of Wormtongue right next yep. to right yep. next to uh, Hrothgar in this one. That did occur to me, um, especially the way he's sitting in his chair is even very similar to the way the Thaisa lighting, over. the lighting yep. coming down and making him look kind of yep. old and and ghastly, uh-huh. and everyone uh, being yeah. so disappointed in him. I, I. I because the the uh, Lord of the Rings does give us a very similar sequence, the actual book does. I'm not going to necessarily suggest that it's being lifted from this spot, but they are remarkably similar. Yeah. Well, probably what's happening is is Michael Crichton is lifting from Lord of the Rings. Right. That's much more likely. And getting his his kind of like yeah. fleshing out of the, the scene from Beowulf that uh-huh. way. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there's a conversation that goes on between Hrothgar and Bolvai, uh, and afterward the Vikings are chatting, and they're split as to whether to believe Hrothgar's claim that his his kingdom is under attack from monsters that still haven't been named. Um, Herger in particular says we haven't nobody's heard of them in a hundred years, whatever they are. Uh, but while they're arguing, a boy runs into town screaming, and Queen Welu, uh, Welfeau, played by Diane Venora leads the warriors to the farm the boy comes from. Uh, And when they explore the farm, they find the boy's family slaughtered and partially eaten. Mm. And everyone's a little freaked out because they now believe Hrothgar's story. Because apparently, whatever these unnamed monsters are, they're famous for eating the dead. It is said they eat the dead. kind of a man could do that? Herger finally explains to Ahmed that they, they know that what they're facing is called the Wendal, a semi-legendary tribe of flesh eaters who may or may not be human. Yes. The Wendal, Andy. The Wendal, which, you know, <laughs> brings to mind the the Vandals, that, that tribe. Sure, absolutely. But uh, I don't think they're associated in any way. These uh, Vendal are supposed to be some kind of uh, Morlocks, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely the only reference being made here. <laughs> yes, uh, they're either Morlocks or some kind of Neanderthal kind of. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I think people. they're definitely uh, yeah some kind of Neanderthal. And so what we're meant to understand here is that in this version of the Beowulf story, Grendel is essentially a kind of hive mind made up of hundreds of Neanderthals uh, who, as we'll uh, see, like to like to dress up as bears. Hundreds. I'm thinking some of those scenes, there are thousands. You think so? John, they, they create a line of torches that weaves down a mountain. That's true. That's true. Although it's not much of a mountain in fairness. <laughs> From a distance, um, they see that. I, I, it's right. a lot of people. Well, um, while they're standing around uh, trying not to throw up at the side of these uh, bodies, or in the case of Ahmed, throwing up at the side of these bodies... Uh, yes. One member of the group, uh, Ekthor the Silent, the group's tracker, tells them that they're being watched by the Wendal even at that moment, and they should get back to town. Yeah. You know why he's called Ekthor the Silent? Uh, because he's quiet. 
Because uh, he notoriously doesn't talk about the fact that he's Beowulf's actual father. Oh, Bullvine's <laughs> actual father. <laughs> uh, for those who may not know, uh, uh, Beowulf's father's name is Edgethel. Uh And if you look at the script's spelling of this name, his name is Edgethel. Right. Uh, but in the in the film, they keep calling him Ekthel, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, just kind of obscures where they got that name from. But pretty clearly, yeah. Good for Crichton for you know taking these yeah, no, names from the text and then adapting yep. them in a yep. silly way. Uh, anyways, we we fast forward to that night in the hall. Uh, Bulvai is insulted by Hrothgar's son Wiglif, uh, and huh? there's a few lines directly lifted from the poem here. For the Wendell, one night's time. And then talk to us of courage. I thank the Lord for his advice. Though I don't recall hearing any exploits of his, apart from killing his brothers. You sit down and be silent! Wigliffe, by the way, is Unferth, obviously. Yeah. He even, you know what I thought was interesting about the Unferth character in this? Uh, mm-hmm. Wigliffe, or whatever his name is. Um, he has a similar look to the Unferth character in Space Beowulf. You think so? He's a tall, Germanic, blonde guy. Yeah, but this guy's more weedy. I mean, this guy doesn't have as much of a role either. The but... other guy, the other guy, uh, the Space Beowulf guy had more of a kind of solidity to him. This guy's a little weedy looking. Also, to be looks fair... Like, looks like King Joffrey all grown up. That's right, yeah. Uh, to be fair, we, we're calling it Space Beowulf. It's not in space. It has nothing to do with space. <laughs> It's just Christopher Lambert's it's, Beowulf. It's space Beowulf, let's be honest. <laughs> but that's what we call uh, Anyway, uh, so later that night, uh, the warriors lay in the hall. Uh, they, the 13 of them are alone in the hall, mm-hmm. pretending to sleep. And I, I, I did like this bit because Ahmed thinks he's the only one awake with snoring all around him. Yeah. And then he slowly realizes that everyone's eyes are open as they're making snoring sounds. Yeah, uh, I, like the, the, I like this scene because not only does it capture... Something of that scene in Beowulf where Beowulf is mm-hmm. waiting for Grendel to arrive and we kind of get that tension building. But we've read many sagas now where we see this exact thing where yeah. a, a guy is waiting by the door for the monster mm-hmm. to come through. Um, yep. And that kind of that 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 tension, that that tightness of the body as you wait and your your mm-hmm. your, it's, your senses are heightened to every sound uh, that you hear. This captures it pretty well, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, and and it doesn't take long before the window actually do break in through the walls, and we get our first look at them. Uh, Andy, what do we think about the Wendell? I mean, I don't know what you're asking there. What do they look like? They look like bear people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What this, do I think of them? I'm going to save that for our Grendel uh, assessment <laughs> period. I think right away my biggest problem with the way the Wendell look in this film is that um, it wasn't clear to me at all that I was meant to read them as anything other than guys wearing bear skins. Yes. And yet yeah, okay. it if, becomes if clear that everyone... Right. All the characters in the film think they're like bear people. Yes. That they're think, some kind of like animal man, lycanthrope hybrid thing. Yeah. And to me, it was very clear from moment one, these are just dudes wearing fur. <laughs> yeah, but you have the uh, you have the advantage <laughs> of, of Hollywood lighting. To help kind of... I, I guess. You know, I so, guess. But now imagine you're you're living in that space and these dudes are right. rushing through and, and, and dragging you off to be eaten. Sure. You, sure. you, you, you know, uh, might not pay well, as close attention. Sp- right. And speaking of Hollywood lighting, this whole battle is very dark and chaotic. Uh, yeah. Ahmed is struggling to lift the huge sword he's been given. 
he was given it earlier and, to- and he said he couldn't lift it. And the advice he got was, well, grow stronger. Uh, yes, well, I he like hasn't grown stronger yet, Andy. Not yet. No. Uh, and so um, I, I, well, I want to yeah. say one thing that disappointed me about this battle and every other battle in the film. <laughs> I didn't see a single backflip. Well, I know, you know, you, you can tell a quality Beowulf by the uh, the way he sticks his backflips. That's and right. This guy, this guy, very, very top heavy. Not if a, I know not one given thing about martial combat, it's that yeah. backflips definitely don't expose you to the violence of your enemy. Yeah, they, are they the, help they you are get away. They of spades of martial moves. Yeah. They well. beat everything else on the board. Um, so this Beowulf doesn't yeah. have that, nor does Ahmed. No. Uh, and Ahmed can barely even lift a sword, let alone try to start doing somersaults. Mm-hmm. Uh, he manages to kill one of the Wendal before he is clubbed across the face by a warrior wielding a bear's paw on a stick. And again, that to me was clearly what was happening. But later on, we're supposed to be surprised when they realize it is a bear's paw on a stick. <laughs> There's nothing about the scene that suggests that it's anything else, but... Okay. Uh, again, you uh, have the advantage of sitting on your couch and watching I it. understand. They're I experiencing understand. it in real time and in first well, person. I, you know, Andy, last time I fought Neanderthals, I had time to make a great deal of observations. So, <laughs> uh, I, I th- I'll thank you not to cast aspersions. Sorry about that. Uh, thank you. Uh, the warriors kill several of the Wendal, and two of our 13 warriors are killed, or possibly three. Yeah. Uh, this is something that's bothered me for a long time about this movie. Uh, because we have 13 warriors in mm-hmm. this company. Two of them are supposed to die on the in this battle. There are only 10 of them left after this. I pause during a crowd scene, and there are very clearly only 10 of them left. Uh, One of them was in the bathroom, though. Well, there is... Because I, I, this t- took me down a rabbit hole that I really do not honestly care to explain in any detail because it's embarrassing how much time I spent on it. But what I eventually learned is that there is a warrior. One of the warriors is named Haltoff the Boy. Okay. That character, that actor, appears only in the scene where the 13 warriors are chosen and then in two crowd scenes when they first arrive in Hrothgar's hall. After that, that character is never seen again. John. And so that night, when the attack happens, two men are, are killed identified by their headless corpses and dragged out of the room. The third guy is just gone and is never mentioned again. I'm going to just have to say, for canon purposes, that his entire body was dragged away by the Wendell. Well, the, uh, Obviously it turns out the Wendell are they, very good at dragging whole bodies away. Well, I mean, it, it, it seems that something happened where the actor just either couldn't, wasn't available anymore or what, but they just kind of forgot about this character about uh, 10 minutes into the film. If there's one thing I notice about this film, it's good at forgetting things that it sets up. (laughs) Yes, it is. So yes, in, in fairness, this may also just be absolute apathy, but it was something that niggled at me over the years that, that this 13 warrior, because it is the title of the damn film. Yes. You think they would keep track of all 13 of them. Right. Uh, But yes, it turns out that there's one of the 13 just kind of vanishes at this point in the film. That said, so we're John, just assume that the, the three film of them is called the Thirteenth Warrior. It's not called the yep. Thirteen Warriors. Its interest it's, is in but you can't the have, Thirteenth. You can't have a Thirteenth Warrior, Andy, without one through twelve. It's yeah, a but team do you effort. have to care about who they there are? There is no not Thirteen really. in Team, Andy. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, the 
the uh the Wendall, as you said, when they run off, they take their dead with them, and so they leave no bodies behind to be inspected. Uh, it's not super clear how that works because a lot of them got killed, and I didn't see any of them carrying bodies when they left. But whatever, we're gonna assume they have a sort of another class of people who comes with them and just carries away the bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Ahmed is uh, found after the battle. He's been knocked unconscious, and he has several uh, gouges across his face from the club. And a woman named Olga treats the wounds with boiled down cow urine. So. You know, there's romantic sparks aplenty there. Well, I like that he uh, he says, don't put that filth on me and then give me some water. And she's like, well, if I give you the water, okay. we have. Tomorrow the pus will run and you'll have a fever. That's right, yeah. So he's like, okay, urine it is. All right, bring on the urine. At least it's um, boiled. I will say, I have rarely seen a prop in a film that so clearly indicated the smell that it's supposed to have. <laughs> the, 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 the viscosity and color of that stuff Looks like it smells like boiled down cow urine. You know what? So good I'm job look up the boiled master. urine real quick and see what its <laughs> uses are. Uh, boiled urine. Apart from foreplay. <laughs> <laughs> um. Okay. There's videos of people talking about it. Yeah. Talking about uh, can you if you boil it, can you drink it? Oh God. Uh. I mean, I know that, you know, these, this is used in things like, uh, you know, rendering and in, in um, softening fabrics and, and leathers and that kind of thing. I mean, here's but something I that I wasn't expecting to see. Uh, uh-huh. Not far down on the list is uh, virgin boy egg. Excuse me? <laughs> yeah. What does that says, have to do with boiled down cow urine? Uh, well, I didn't specify whose urine it is. Um, but uh, <laughs> I'm learning here. This has nothing to do with the 13th Warrior, but virgin boy so you eggs. Just, you just went onto the internet all willy-nilly and looked for urine? No, no. You're I, not worried about the, the FBI term was, list you just got on? The search term was boiled urine, obviously. Boiled urine, excuse me. Yeah. Oh, boiled. So now you've got boy. That's no, I don't think that's how. No. <laughs> if you would be quiet, you'll hear why oh, it came up. All right. So according to Wikipedia, virgin boy eggs... <laughs> Sounds like an Octavia Butler story. Um, Jesus. Are a traditional dish of, of Dongyang in uh, China in, in which eggs are boiled in the urine of young boys, preferably under Oof. the age of 10. Oof. Oh, what? Yeah. So. Oh, God. Far be it for me to criticize another culture for its practices, but ew. Hmm. But uh, yeah, there's there there's plenty of stuff about boiled urine if you want to. That's rough. Research that. Uh, I don't see it really used much in here. It's mostly for eggs, it seems. (laughs) Good, good. Yeah, keep it to the eggs. Well, Um, that's the the next morning. uh, Ahmed uh, sits down for breakfast. (laughs) (laughs) You'll never guess how we prepared the eggs. That's right. We had a lot of leftover boiled urine, so. Uh Uh-huh. Well, speaking of the next morning, uh, we get a montage. Uh, The warriors now have time to lead Hrothgar's people in building a defensive wall around the town. So we don't have to deal with just being attacked inside yes, the hole about anymore. Damn time. You would think that someone I, you would think. in Hrothgar's camp thought of that. But uh, no. Well, again, it, it, as we said earlier, it's pretty clear that Hrothgar is not well. Uh, That's because of Wormtongue. On. That's, there you go. Except for the fact that Wormtongue isn't in this film. But yes. Well, I, I, I'm sure you're going to get to this in your very lengthy mm-hmm. summary that you're offering us. But um. <laughs> Yeah, that's entirely my fault, Mister. I'm going to go look on the internet for cow urine. But the the, <laughs> the film the film sets up all these kind of subplots 
yeah. about some kind of intrigue yep. within Hrothgar's court. Yep. With, that has something to do with Wiglaf and some some dudes. Mm-hmm. And there's there's some kind of problem that the the 13 warriors are trying to suss out. Oh my god. So the actual <laughs> film we have to cover isn't enough for you. You need to try to like figure out other better films that are hidden in this one. I want to know where the hell that story goes because that is completely <laughs> dropped. There's a there's a whole scene coming up with that Holmgang, that mm-hmm. that duel that's fought. Well, well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about that. Let's talk about that. But why uh, it goes nowhere? But it's it's. I agree. Wiglaf's <laughs> like Wiglaf's questioning of Beowulf. The, the why why is Hrothgar in the shape that he is? Mm-hmm. What's going on to weaken this court from within? That's all yep. introduced to us as though it's yep. something that we should be paying attention to. And then it's forgotten completely. Here's what I'm going to say. It's a, this movie is putting out there little story kernels that later interpretations of Beowulf on film are going to pick up and run with. That I would agree with. But they're uh, not. That I think they're not. They're not following up on them. But there well, end up it, being it, things in this film that are not followed up on. I have to wonder. I think we'll be able to trace later on in other films. I wonder if Tiernan was going for something different with this film. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. Crichton came in and based on the you know, reviews from the, mm-hmm. the test audiences was like, oh, we, we just got to cut all that stuff and right. focus on just wrapping up the story with the Vendel. Sure. That's the key. Sure. So it's uh, probably too complicated before and they simplified right. it. Right. Right. But meanwhile, we have plenty of time to deal with uh, Ahmed Ibn Fadlan having trouble lifting his sword. Yeah, uh, so ridiculous. And so while everybody else is building defenses, he goes off to a blacksmith and has the massive sword he's been given ground down into a perfectly balanced scimitar. He, he does it himself, and uh, it's he, well. He tries try to get the blacksmith to do it, and then the blacksmith can't figure out what he wants, and so he has to push the guy aside and do it himself. He says, "I want uh, an anachronistic sword that doesn't uh, belong to my God. people." Well, and not only that, that's not how blacksmithing or swords work. I mean, <laughs> no, swords there's so many are problems. made with a balance point for a reason. You can't just grind away. 40% of the sword blade and still have a working sword. Because it's folded steel. It's 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 yeah. folded together. Yeah. It's blended. There's, there's so many reasons this is impossible. Yeah. but th- And yet, it doesn't matter. It's how movie swords work. It is so how movie. Fine. And it, it's also, to make a point, it's similar to the horse, right? The right. Vikings right. Have, Everyone has a good laugh over what they call Ahmed's knife. That's right. Uh, but the Vikings have huge horses. He has a small yep. horse. But look at how yep. agile his small horse is and fast uh-huh. and how it can jump over things. Now, yep. he doesn't have a big kind of broadsword, but he has this slender scimitar mm-hmm. uh, that he's able to... Well, a scimitar that most Americans and Europeans would associate with the Middle East erroneously. I know. And it's, so... It's... Yeah. But at least it's I mean, fast. <laughs> Right. Well, and they all laugh about it, and it's all good comatatus male bonding fun. Uh, but much less fun is that Olga warns Ahmed that Prince Wiglif is trying to turn Hrothgar against Bulvai and his crew. Wait a minute. Uh, so Political here's intrigue. That, here's that uh, worm tongue thing. Yeah. Uh, they decide to make an example out of one of Wiglif's followers, who's a red-haired giant named Angus. Uh, Herger, who's one of the smaller Vikings on the crew, uh picks a fight with Angus by throwing mud at him during the wall construction, and they agree to fight a duel. Uh, we haven't mentioned this. Uh, Herger is just kind of an average height guy. Uh, Dennis Storhoy, the actor, is six feet tall, but most of the actors in this movie are huge. Yeah, especially Bullvi. He's gigantic. Oh, my God. Well, he actually, Bullvi is six foot five, 
One of the other guys, Ragnar the Dower, is six foot nine. Uh, mm. It's like they put out a call for every like huge dude in Scandinavia to come and make a movie. Well, they still do that. We're, well, we're making a Viking Angus, movie. Need big dudes. I mean, yeah. Well, and actually, it's funny that uh, I, when you watch the TV show Vikings, um, when I used to live tweet that, I would occasionally play Spot the Guy from 13th Warrior. <laughs> yeah. Because most of the cast of this show, this movie ends up on that show at one point or another. Mm. The guy who played Bulvi, Bulvi uh, actually plays a member of um, the Earl's crew who gets his throat slit while he's peeing in season one. Oh. Uh, but it's it's like several of them show up over the course of the show. Well, anyway, of course they would. This guy, Angus, looks like he's about seven foot two. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure about the actual actor's height. They may be cheating here. Uh, this is his only movie as an actor. He's actually a film director uh, who's actually from Massachusetts. He uh, oh. he was born not that far from where I live. Well, well, well. Uh, but um, he's, yeah, he looks huge in this thing. Uh, the actual fight itself is pretty one-sided. Uh, the giant Angus uh, shreds all three of Herger's shields yeah. and then stalks him around the dueling ground. As now, Herger is sweating and gasping for breath and stumbling around. John, as saga guys, uh, Viking yeah. uh, story yeah. guys, we, we got to draw attention to this great yep. uh, home gong. Uh, they, I was going to finish, the, I was gonna finish the, the duel and then ask you what you thought of it, but go ahead. I'm going yeah, to tell you what I think of it right now because I'm tired go of hearing you talk. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like that we have the three shields laid out mm-hmm. and the competition is fighting with these shields but when your shield is broken you get a, a little break you can go yep. pick up your next shield um yep. it's it's all kind of marked the the territory is marked out it's so a marked i think out space very confined it, space there's yep. some good attention to the cultural details of the home gong here that i appreciate when watching this film yep. and i also like the the trickery that is that is at play here with what hergar yep. is doing with this gigantic fellow who is just smashing shields yep. Well, and what he does uh, is that he he lures uh, Angus in for the kill. And, of course, Angus, being a giant guy, tends to move sort of largely and deliberately. And so when mm-hmm. he goes in for a killing blow on this guy who's apparently too tired to move, yeah. Herger spins out of the way, does a complete pirouette, and chops Angus's head off with a single blow. Yeah. Uh, and... Angus sort of drops to the ground and Herger walks away very suddenly, not tired and not out of breath. Mm -hmm. The whole thing was an obvious ruse, uh, but it is a ruse that really plays on the advantages of a smaller warrior against a larger one, which is nice. But John, that leads to a a very important conversation between Ahmed and Hergar and Bulvai talking about what they're trying to suss out, what they're trying to learn, Eh, how it all goes. Is it really that important though? (laughs) It's never picked up ever again. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, yeah, the, again, it's references to these various court intrigues that never really go anywhere. It's uh, very disappointing. The only other detail of that of that fight that I want to point out is that Herger makes a point of then tossing a bag of gold to Wigliff. Oh, yeah. Essentially paying the man price for the guy he's just the killed. Fair guilt. Um, uh, which is a nice, uh, which is a nice detail yeah. because you know they don't they don't ever take it to court or anything. Nothing ever comes of this. But. Yeah, and I, again, I'm assuming that this stuff, these are details that are in the book, and this is Crichton doing his research. Yep. Uh, well, really, I mean, all this is just kind of you know, it's it's just we're just spinning the wheels because uh, everyone's just waiting for the next Wendell attack. Yeah. Uh, uh, Ahmed Benderis has a bonding moment with uh, Ekto the Silent, uh, the Ranger of the Comitatus. 
that ends with Ecto ziplining his way out of a tree to a nearby lookout tower. Wait a minute, that guy's uh, Ecto? Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, the guy with the curly black hair, yeah. I, I mean, I know who who's up there. There's, I, there's two curly black-haired ones. Ecto <laughs> uh, and Halfdan are both uh, have curly black hair. You know, if only they had more distinctive braided hair and beards like, you know, modern <laughs> Viking shows. Or indeed personalities. I don't know. No, uh, uh, it's it all all it's the depictions of Vikings mm-hmm. in in film are almost always somewhat ridiculous, aren't they? Well, especially when they start zip lining out of trees. How uh, would you get out of the big tree? I mean, presumably climb the, down the way I climbed up. But well, I that's a very slow method. Again. Here's my question: uh, How much prep had to go into him being able to zip line? What do you think he's because doing all day? presumably he had to tie that rope to the lookout tower he ziplines to, then walk over to that tree, then climb up it with that rope tied to his back, avoiding all the branches it could snag on in order to tie it up there with him. So John, you are talking about down. 15s of minutes oh, worth of geez. work for a guy but that's spending the time days. He's supposed, to spend, he's supposed to spend scanning the horizon looking for trouble. How long do you think he's it takes to scan the horizon? spending on building himself a little adventure zone. Get out of here. Anyway, uh, this is all irrelevant because all we're really waiting for is the next attack, which comes that afternoon when a line of fire is seen descending a nearby mountain. A line of this, fire descending yes. a mountain. As as everyone is eager to tell us, this is the Firewurm, uh, <laughs> the most dreaded weapon of the Wendal, uh, a, a dragon of fire. Here, here's what I want to uh, know when I see that. Okay, that first attack of the Vendol was like a band of guys that came through and and attacked. This is a legit army. Yeah. Okay. Now, how, yeah. John, do these people? But you're spoiling the fire verb. Oh, I'm sorry. It's not a verb. It's it's the Vendol. Um, how yeah, do it's, they? It's a, it's it's cavalry. <laughs> how do they exist in this? They're not that far away. They exist yeah. here, and they're nobody seems to know. Yeah. It's one of those things. Because they're living in Mammoth Cave yep. under that mountain? What is yep. <laughs> what is this? Uh, well, they're they're eating the dead, Andy. It it <laughs> helps. It helps a lot. It's, that's the, uh, <laughs> oh, that explains it. They eat the dead. Anyway, uh so for the second time in the last fifteen minutes of film, uh Ahmed spots a child running toward the fort across the open wasteland yeah. and rides out to rescue them. You can't use uh, that scene twice the way that they do. You absolutely can, but this time it's a girl, Andy, so it's very <laughs> different. Uh, he rescues uh, he rescues the girl, and as he's doing that, he gets a closer look at the fire worm and sees that it's just men on horseback carrying torches in the mist. Uh, and when he returns to the tower, to the town, he tells the others that it's cavalry. Herger looks disgusted and says, I'd rather prefer a dragon. <laughs> Which I like as a line. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, in the time it takes the Wendal to ride across the field, night apparently falls because the next scene is entirely in the dark. Uh, which, of course, they had to have the daytime because he had to be able to spot the girl half a mile away from the town. But now they want dark because that makes the fire scarier. Yeah. Uh, and so they just go ahead and change the day to night. Why not? Why not? You know, great directors know that we don't care about these things. That's right. Uh, we get lots of Hollywood-style action with the Wendell throwing torches and spears over the walls while the Norsemen fire arrows at them. Uh, several of the warriors are killed in the fight, and Ahmed attacks a Wendell and knocks its bear hood off. 
And apparently for the first time, we learned that these are humans, which again, I did not know we weren't supposed to know up until this point. Uh, and I have to say, the first look at these guys is somewhat underwhelming. They chose a guy with kind of a weak chin. <laughs> uh, and, How dare you judge him? And and they end it ends up looking like a, a guy with kind of a dad bod uh, laying on the ground, weak chinned, covered in gray clay, and looking not terribly frightening or intimidating. No, not at all. Yeah. Um, but but in his defense, all he has to eat are the dead. So That's fair. That's fair. And they're very fatty. They go right to your hips. Right. Uh, so uh, this, of course, puts great heart into Ahmed once he realizes he's fighting men, not bears, uh, which apparently he was confused about. Uh, the the climax of the battle happens when a wall of cavalry ride into the town's main road while the Norsemen stand in the road and level long spears at them and uh, spit the entire first row of horsemen. Uh, the men and horses go flying everywhere. It's all 90s action fun at its best. Is uh, it? The event... The, yeah. I've seen better uh, 90s is, action fun. I mean, this is... this is They're clearly tearing a page out of the Braveheart book here. Uh, I mean, it's like a Cliff's Notes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the Wendell eventually ride away. The survivors do. And we learn that four more of the warriors have been lost. So we're down to six men now. Uh, we've got Ahmed, Bulvai, Herger, Ekthor the Silent, Half Down the Fat, and Tony Karan. Yeah. So Herger offers Ahmed a horn of mead after the battle, but he mm-hmm. refuses it on the grounds that, as a Muslim, he is forbidden from drinking, as he says, the fermentation of the grape or of wheat. And that's, for the yeah, record, which... not an exact explanation of what's in the Koran, but it's it'll it'll serve us for now. Well, either uh, way, uh, Herger yeah. finds it pretty funny. Yeah, Herger laughs and tells him that it's honey. Uh, at which point, uh, Ahmed gulps the thing like a frat boy at last call. I cannot taste neither the fermentation of grape nor of wheat. (laughs) What? Why do you laugh? Honey! (laughs) It's made from honey! Uh, which is he found the loophole. Yep, there's the loophole. Uh, th- there's a there's actually a, a big controversy about this. Uh, yes, there whether is. this is le- legit, whether he's got his interpretation right, or whether this loophole works. Well, yeah, I was I was also pretty sure this was nonsensical. Um, so yeah, I also checked, uh, and it does turn out that there's this century old debate within uh, Islam about what the Quran's prohibition on alcohol actually covers. Right. Uh, the the majority say that it's an absolute ban. Uh, it doesn't matter what the alcohol is made from. There's nothing. There's no distinction between, you know, of the grape and of wheat and all that. It's it's all kumur. Uh, it's all forbidden intoxicants. Right. Uh, but then there's also the Hanafi school, which takes a far more limited view of the Quran's teaching. Right. It says that only grape and date wines are explicitly forbidden, and moreover that the ban is against drunkenness, not against alcohol per se. Mm-hmm. I'm obviously simplifying here. And I, I, for the record, if anybody is a follower of Islam, I have, I have no intention of offending anybody through this. Uh, but uh, I'm trying to make sense out of this. And the cool thing about it is that the Hanafi school, Andy, originates in Baghdad and is adopted originally by the Abbasid Caliphate of Baghdad. 
That's right. Which, yeah, it turns you, out, is exactly who Ahmed was working for back home before right. he hit another guy's wife. <laughs> now, I don't I don't know where you... <laughs> that, there's that part. Um, I don't know uh, how, what kind of search you did, but uh, my search on this subject landed me on a Reddit page mm. that had a very thorough... Uh, someone had a very thorough oh, okay. explanation. Okay, I uh, ended up on of exactly this. I think probably and placed, basically placed even Fatlan in in that school. It is of that era that this kind of thing would Makes have been sense. okay. So yeah. the Ibn Fatlan who's traveling up to the Rus uh, yep. would likely, according to this person on Reddit, anyway. <laughs> which, admittedly, you know, you can't always trust. You but, can tell we're scholars because we go to Wikipedia and Reddit for our information. <laughs> <laughs> when I want to learn about virgin boy eggs, oh boy, <laughs> I go to Wikipedia. Go to Google. Uh, but but yeah, uh, no, I'm trusting, I'm trusting yeah. this individual, and it seems like what you found supports yeah, this claim. Yeah, no, it's actually plausible that Ahmed would have a more relaxed attitude toward drinking than some other Muslims might. Yeah. Which is very, which is really well, interesting. History is mean, fun. I like to think that that suggests that Crichton did his research, uh, but you know, it also made us reflect um, you know, a, a convenient plot point that happens to correspond with historical precedent. Yeah, exactly. Uh, oh, and and then uh, Olga, just to finish that scene, Olga turns up, shares the rest of the horn with him, and then they go have sex in a barn. So that's nice. Sort of pays yeah. off the whole cow urine flirtation earlier. I guess so. Uh, they made a big deal about him sleeping with a married woman or something, but they like uh, who's she married to? What's the who's she's not this married lady? to anybody, as far as we know. Are you sure? I we have no reason to think she is. Here's 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 the problem. I don't know who this woman is. Why, why do you want to stir up trouble for poor Ahmed and Olga? They're just finding and, and why, human, they're finding human contact at a moment of extreme stress, Andy. And from a film, we, why must a, you deny them that, John? From a film writing standpoint, why isn't it just Waylu who sleeps with him? I'm sorry. Um, one because she's somebody's wife. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, uh, I know, but two, it doesn't stop a Hollywood film from from laying that out. And two, uh, have you seen from, her sorry, husband from a film writing point of view? What is your PhD in again? <laughs> my, my, I, I'm a student of uh, popular culture. I see, I see. And so, but yeah, like this. Why, why these two different women? Who is this right, woman? Right. The the urine face scrubber lady. <laughs> I, I don't know. Like let's let's condense this a little bit. She's and and, well, and and have it have some stakes. Let, let's condense it like cow urine. Uh, yeah. So in the morning, uh, Bolvai calls the remaining men together. And now that they know the Wendell are human, he wants to track them back to their lair and kill them all. Uh, Queen Welu, uh, who's full of useful exposition, introduces them to another witch woman who looks like Eartha Kitt at Day 3 of Woodstock. And this is another actor who is just loving the chance to play a mad seeress. You know me. I have ears. Warrior, says the wind. Chieftain, says the rain. But why seek you me? Met you your match? Met you your match with the eaters of the dead. She tells them that to stop the Wendal, they must kill both the warlord and the mother of the Wendal, which is the first time we've heard anything about a mother of the Wendal. Uh, it's not yes. much to go on, but it's all they're getting, so they set off. Well, there's that that whole riddle about the earth and right. They right. They they are of the earth. Seek them in the earth. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it 
Yeah. You know, it moves the plot forward. Right. It's pretty standard seer nonsense, right? It's all, it all ends up being plot relevant because, you know, no seer in the history of Hollywood has ever had something to say that was totally irrelevant. Yeah. Well, oh. there's also that hint that that Weilu or Weilei, Weilthau's Wei, Wei, history yeah, yeah. is more complicated than we know. Right. Uh, because the, the woman looks at her and says, oh, is this now the, the queen? But she, she's looking at her like, we'll look at you now. Yeah. You another one of those story kernels that doesn't go anywhere is that there's clearly yeah. a history between these two. But again, maybe that maybe that's in the book. Maybe maybe I need I to read this book. So, <laughs> um, anyway, uh, it's actually surprisingly easy. It turns out to track the Wendell back to their territory. Um, the Vikings keep talking about you know a child could follow this trail. Finding their yes. lair though is more difficult, uh, despite the fact that it's just over a ridge. Uh, the group yeah. eventually figures out that the Wendell, who wear bear headdresses and carry bear claw clubs, probably live like bears. Yeah. I.e. in caves. That's the sort of movie logic that we're not supposed to think too hard about. So we're going to move yeah. on. <laughs> well, and it's it's Bilbo Baggins that figures that out. Right. Yeah. There you go. Uh, well, the Wendell do, as it turns out, have, the, have a cave. But it's at the center of an entire village of huts, smoking craters, dank-looking streams, and crisscrossing rope bridges. Mm. Uh, if you can, uh, if you haven't seen this film, try to imagine something like the Ewok village crossed with Mordor. That's a fairly good description of what it is. Uh, Now, it doesn't occur to any of these guys, apparently, to try a disguise. Uh, But that's okay, because sneaking through the village, quote-unquote sneaking, by running fast and looking completely conspicuous works just fine. Nobody spots them. Well, you Uh, know why they can't use disguises? Why? Because the Vendel have killed all of the bears in the whole world. But they've killed some of the Vendel. Just put on their bear outfits. <laughs> well, remember the Vendel drag not their after bodies the second, away, but after the second battle, they found that several of the Wendel were left impaled on the uh, the fortifications. A couple of them. I mean, enough that you could at least uh, put on some some things and say that you're taking prisoners to cell block AA twenty three. I suppose you know. I mean, TK four two one. TK four two one. Well done. THX one three eight in the book. So. Anyway, the, uh, they all scurry across the village in plain sight without being spotted. They do have to kill a couple of guards, uh, but otherwise it all goes fine. And they enter the cave. Uh, and inside there are dozens of Wendell who frankly look like dirty, slightly nerdy guys when they're at home. They, they really did not. This is, you can tell this is a 1990s movie and not a 2020s movie because these guys are not all ripped with eight packs. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them had Game Boys. Uh, they're watching Tarantino movies. It's they really <laughs> game boys. They they all are kind of dad body. There's there's they're all just kind of soft and frankly not wow. very scary looking. I'm, I look. John. I am. I take a back to nobody. I have got you know the the uh, the extended cab van of dad bods. Uh, I am I am not casting aspersions by saying this, but these guys are not. They don't look like intimidating warriors when they're at home. They're malnourished from only eating the dead. I mean, okay, they're malnourished, but they could also walk around the block a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they only have their cave system. Little, they're okay, not allowed out unless they're attacking. I, what is it? They, they only come out when there's mm-hmm. mist. Yeah. So, you know. <laughs> Fair enough. How often Fair does enough. that come up? I mean, not very often. Uh, so 
these guys, uh, the warriors creep around in the caves for a while. They find the trash heap where the Wendell tossed the bones of their victims after supper. Uh, and they also find a giant earth goddess statue. Uh, yeah. There's a kind of there's some boys' own adventure stuff involving swinging through waterfalls on ropes in the caves, but really not much happens until they finally find the deep part of the cave where the mother of the Wendell is lurking. John, what was that movie with um, Sam Gamgee where the he Goonies? was with Kevin Bacon? What? No. Oh, okay. He's with Kevin with Bacon, Kevin and Bacon. Kevin Bacon is a is a like a like a scout leader, but he's not a scout leader. He's like an outdoor adventure guy. No idea. He's got a bunch of kids, and they they go. Uh, white, it's called Whitewater Summer. That's what it's called. I've never heard like of this that. film. But there's a scene almost exactly like this, where where Sam Gamgee, who has a young boy at the Sean time, Aston, by has the way. to has, a name. has to do <laughs> he has to rappel across a, uh-huh. a chasm or something like that, or just around a corner on a cliff, and he can't do it. And mm-hmm. boy, that Kevin Bacon, he really gives him the business. <laughs> <laughs> you can. If you try. For Christ's sake, Vic! I can't do it! Don't you understand? I can't do it! Then that's where you'll stay. What? And so Uh-oh. I think this whole scene is directly... It's just lifted off of that There you movie. go. It's, it's an homage. Uh-oh. It's an homage, yes. Because it was on all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't say I've ever seen it. Um, it's a good movie. I think you would like well, it. Well, I, I look forward to finding out. Uh, anyway... Once they find the cave, the rest of the group hold off the Wendall. They immediately start killing Wendall left and right. Uh, and then they all form a, per- a defensive perimeter so that Bullvie can enter the cave to kill the mother. Uh, he, f- he finds the heads of his missing men decorating the place, which is a nice, gruesome touch. Uh, and then faces the mother in single combat. And this is this is our first look at the Grendel's mother of this film. Any thoughts, Andy? I ha- I, well, I happen to know some things about this particular scene. Go for it. So, first of all, Grendel's mother in this film is played by a young woman mm-hmm. who is very skinny, mm-hmm. uh, very has a very tribal kind of feel to her, mm-hmm. and um, she's killed almost instantly. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, I was watching this this film with my son, and uh, that scene came up, and he, he understands how tension builds. He's a thirteen year old boy. Yeah. He, he understands how a film is supposed to work. And uh, as soon as she like stands up and he just cuts her in half or whatever happened, he's like, what? What is that? <laughs> I mean, now, here's the here's yeah. the interesting thing. Yeah, they had uh, they had a, another shot to kind of yep. fix this problem, because I guess in McTiernan's version, mm-hmm. it was an older woman. Right. Because she's supposed to be the mother of this great right. tribe. And this, and this woman is supposed to be like the guardian of that woman. Oh, so was this originally? This was part of the original thing, but she's like a guardian of that. Woman. Something like it wasn't that, a yeah. reshoot. Yeah. Ah, uh, interesting. So yeah, in the original version of this, before Crichton kind of cleaned it up mm-hmm. or whatever you want to yeah. think he did to it, um, it w- they were supposed to go in and fight an older woman who is mm-hmm. the the matriarch figure, but Crichton felt that Vikings beating up an right. old woman Watching wasn't a good look. Six foot six guy with a sword <laughs> beating yeah, up which, an old woman. <laughs> to be fair, this is one of the this is one of the corners you write yourself into yeah. when you choose humanistic characters rather than monsters or troll wives. Right. I mean, it is this problem that Crichton has. I think in a lot of his novels, not a problem, but a feature of his novels that he believes that you know if you're going to have something that seems supernatural, it has to eventually have a logical explanation. Yeah. And yeah, this is the this is Beowulf, right? I mean, as Tolkien tells us, did anybody notice there's trolls and dragons in this? It's not. Yeah. It's not meant to be realistic and historical. 
Uh, and yeah, there are, you run into some real problems. And even having gotten rid of the old woman, what we have instead is this giant with a sword fighting a young woman who's wearing basically a fur bikini and fighting with a bone knife. Yeah, and having been in caves, I think a fur bikini maybe not the best well insulation. Uh, but the you know it goes very predictably. I mean, he just lops her head off in about ten seconds. Uh, yeah, she does manage to scratch his arm though, and since we already yeah, saw her, has, yep, that that is actually a, a, a I, as the film progressed and I realized what was going on. I mm-hmm. thought that's actually a clever touch because it's like a fang. Yeah, she has a what I'm going to call a dragon's fang. Okay, you can call it which that. she dips in poison. Mm-hmm. And that's what she scratches Beowulf's arm with. Yep. And John, remind me, how does Beowulf die in the book? Uh, if I remember correctly, uh, he was bitten by a dragon and died of the dragon's uh, uh, slaver and venom. Yes. So a nice little nod mm-hmm. to the dragon's venom here. For I mean, it does for require the leap that you're making of calling that bone knife a dragon's tooth. But well, I'm willing to go with it. They lived in the time of dragons, I believe. Did they? So, not, yeah. not in this story. In this story, dragons are just guys on horseback holding torches. But uh, long story short, that that fight sucks. Yeah, it's a it's it's a deeply anticlimactic moment. Um, and uh, at that point, uh, Bovai uh, sort of staggers out of the cave. Right, he's he's holding his arm. He realizes he's in trouble, but there's no time to really. Uh, dwell on it because the Wendell are attacking attacking in force. Uh, the the men now run down another tunnel following a stream of water, but one of them, uh, half Dan, uh, half Dan the Fat, is too badly injured to continue, and stays behind to cover their escape. He says to Abbot, "Today was a good day." <laughs> now okay. off you go. <laughs> um, here, here's what's to note about that death. I didn't know who that guy was, nor did I care about him. <laughs> He's the one who tried to feed him stew on the ship. They have a bond. Well, good for him. A stew bond. Uh, anyway. So that, that, that's what uh, Ahmed is thinking as he walks away. Right. The stew bond is broken. Appreciate the stew, man. Uh, so the rest of them, uh, they run a short way, but they come to a blank wall where the water flows under the rock. And as they're preparing for a last stand, Ahmed and Ekvo... Uh, hear a sound of waves breaking and realize the stream must empty into the nearby bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bullvi is now sort of staggering badly and drops to one knee, so the other four have to carry him along with the current until they escape into the open water. Uh, this, by the way, is the scene where Dennis Storhai almost drowned and Antonio Banderas had to rescue him. Yeah, I really like that they, they put the, you know, in the Beowulf story... Beowulf has to swim underwater yep. to access the yep. cave. Here, it's far less interesting because they're just leaving that way. Right. It suggests that the Beowulf poet might know what he's doing. Yeah, yeah I think so. That building tension might be something that is done better in the poem than in this uh, in this story. But, yeah. you know, I guess we'll save that for judgments. Uh, so uh, once they've all escaped, uh, later that afternoon, Bolvai is sitting in Hrothgar's hall clearly dying from the mother's poison. Uh, Mm -hmm. He then drops some fairly heavy hints that he'd like Ahmed to write an epic telling his story, and Ahmed agrees. Uh, So we're sort of paying it off, right? Sort of paying off the whole I can can read and write thing. Yeah, Uh, I I like this idea, even though it's ridiculous, obviously, uh, but it's it's the story of the origins of the Beowulf narrative. Right, right, exactly. But the fact that you're putting it into the hands of... Well, a guy from Baghdad, 
who <laughs> is clearly not gonna. Well, uh, he, maybe, but he did it's because that's that where we get the Ahmatusi manuscript translated oh. by Frau Stolis. I guess that's it, and then it, it makes its way up to Scandinavia, then it See? gets over to England. Exactly, turned into Beowulf. Um, so, but uh, I like the idea that, yeah. that there's a consciousness which started with that, like the the idea of the importance of telling stories and how fame is connected to stories mm-hmm. and legacy is connected mm-hmm. to stories. That all comes full circle in this rather ham-fisted scene. Right. <laughs> Just a little bit. But um, I like it. Anyway, uh, so while they're all waiting for Bullvi to die, uh, the other men uh, realize they have to scramble to prepare for yet another attack uh, because Herger says they killed the mother, but they forgot to kill the war leader. They were told they yeah. had to kill both the warlord and the mother, and they didn't kill the warlord, and so the Wendal are out for revenge. One uh, would expect yeah. a really cool scene coming. Sure one would. Uh, where now Beowulf, Bulvi, is is deathly injured, mm-hmm. so he's going to need someone, an unlikely figure, yeah. to step up. Sure. A wigloff of his own, if you will. <laughs> to step up and save the day and have an yeah. epic battle with this Grendel figure, the yep. horned warlord. Boy, oh boy, that would be great. Here's what we get. That would be. Uh, what we get is um, the men prepare a defensive structure. Uh, the Wendal begin riding toward them. Uh, and as they're all preparing for a last stand, we get a uh, a moment of kind of what I would call a dad movie moment. Um, oh yeah, uh, where Ahmed prays to Allah for strength, and then joins the Norsemen in a prayer to their ancestors. Um, and in the middle of this, uh, Bulvai staggers out of the hall to join the defenders on the wall, uh, dragging his sword behind him. Uh, and again, if I understand the internet use of the term, this is a an absolute dad movie moment. Lo, there do I see my father. Lo, there do I see my mother, mother and my sisters, sisters and, and my, my brothers. brothers. Lo, there do I see the line of my, my people. people. Back to the beginning. Lo, they do call to me. They bid me take my place among them. In the halls of Valhalla, where the brave may live forever. If there's anything that people take from this film and mm-hmm. remember, it's in it's the these prayers, popular yeah. yep. popular memory. Yep. It is. The scene where he learns the language and says, I was listening. Yep. And it is this this Viking, quote unquote, Viking prayer um, that we heard the woman say earlier when she was being prepared for mm-hmm. death with her, her king. Yes. Uh, and now these guys are saying it um, as well. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I, I believe uh, Jackson Crawford did the old Nor- uh, uh, an interpretive Old Norse version of that. Oh, did he? Um, if you go look at at his uh, his channels, he has mm. that particular section from Ibn Fatlan. Um, I think he has a whole episode on Ibn Fatlan okay. that uh, you guys can watch. But he he goes over that poem in a reconstructed Old Norse version 
Um, so check right. that out. Well, so what we get, uh, the actual battle that follows this moment is a little bit disappointing. Uh, it's a it's a mess of mud and blood. Uh, there's just lots yeah. of slow motion fighting, lots of extras inexpertly throwing spears, uh, a fair number of shots of blood spray and horses and men falling to the mud. Uh, most of this scene was apparently added after the initial cut of the film. Um, this is apparently mostly the stuff that Michael Crichton directed himself. And it's not, yeah, it's not bad, really. It's, it's just using a combination of quick cutaways and slow-mo to cover for a lack of wide angles and fight choreography. Right. There's well, yeah, very clearly I, no master plan behind the way this is being presented. Well, I guess they're working with the scraps that they have available to right. them because they can't go and restage a, a massive fight scene. Right. So my guess would be that this is footage from the first fight scene, the first mm-hmm. big battle that mm-hmm. they're repurposing for this second because once again they forgot major plot points and they're like, "Oh yeah, we have the, <laughs> we have to deal with <laughs> the son who is the warlord who doesn't even really aside from riding his horse up and kind of yep swinging his club around, he doesn't really do anything. No, and Bolvai uh dispatches him with almost embarrassing ease. Uh yeah. just as the guy rides up to him, Bolvai just hits him in the gut with a sword. Yeah, again, my son was appalled by yeah. the the quickness and the lack of drama <laughs> that we... There's so much buildup yeah. just to lead to the same thing that happened with Grendel's mother or yeah. the Vendel's mother. Uh, we're just going to quick cut them and then and then everyone runs away. Right. No, you know, if you haven't seen this film, I really we cannot overstate how anticlimactic this battle is. Um, yeah. It's got... It's got all the elements you would expect. It's got, you know, like guys running around in the rain. It's got blood. It's got horses falling. But it it really does add up to just about nothing. Yes. Now that they've lost their mother and their warlord, they have nothing really to fight for. And so they ride off into the hills. And as they sort of fade away into the distance, uh, Bolvai uh, drags himself back up to the fortifications, props himself into a sitting position, and dies watching his enemies flee before him. On on what is almost a, a cool throne made almost. of made of spikes. Almost. Cool. Uh, after the inevitable kind of you know the funeral scene, uh, there is a final scene of this film of Herger bidding farewell from the shore as Ahmed uh, Edgelow the Silent and Tony Curran sail away to begin Ahmed's journey home. Goodbye, Arab. Goodbye, Northman. I don't really know why Ekthor the Silent and Tony Curran are going with him. Uh, that's never really explained. They just are. Uh, yeah. Presumably, Herger is staying behind to take leadership of something. But again, not really explained. Uh, we do know they've had time to all have a shower. They're all clean. But otherwise, yeah, there's no real explanation as to what's going on here. Yeah, Ahmed's back in his his Arabic clothes. Yep, yep. Uh, the film ends with uh, Ahmed uh, writing his manuscript, presumably having returned to Baghdad. And that's the movie. At least he wrote the story of Bulvai. He kept up his end of the bargain. He did, he did. And now look at us. We're talking about it <laughs> centuries later. Centuries later, not not uh, not having necessarily fallen for the the fraud of the ma- fake manuscript, but uh, certainly yeah. having spent uh, far more hours of my life than I care to admit watching this film. 
Well, and now you just spent almost two hours talking about it. Uh, and so, so we're really to... sorry. You probably should have just taken that almost two hours and watched the actual film. Honestly, one could do that. <laughs> but then they Or, miss you know what? Sync them up and just commentary. use this as a commentary track. Yeah. Um, but uh, now that we've uh, talked about the mm-hmm. film, John, are you ready to talk about the film? Questions. When you sleep at a time like this. The old father wove the skein of your life a long time ago. Go and hide in a hole if you wish. But you won't live one instant longer. Your fate is fixed. Fear profits man nothing. So in this section, we're going to, uh, Andy and I like to pose each other a few questions. Uh, these these can be serious questions or these can just be the kind of questions we usually ask. Uh, frivolous and pointless. Uh, yes. Our answers almost certainly will be the same. Uh, so, Surely. Andy, uh, in this movie, we get plenty of moments of what I would call faux medieval fantasy. Oh, yeah. Uh, right. Uh, writing being called drawing sounds. The Norsemen at one point uh, shout Odin repeatedly to echolocate <laughs> in the fog. Yes. Uh, Odin's helping them. Right. Uh, so what's your favorite bit of faux medieval nonsense in this film? Wow. Uh, faux medieval nonsense. Because it has to be, f- it's faux medieval, yes. so it can't be something specifically, that's legit. Yeah, specifically stuff that is sort of Hollywoody faux medieval. Uh, mine is the idea that every medieval settlement has to have rope bridges. <laughs> I'm not sure when it was decided that medieval townsfolk lived in an adventure park, but it shows up in a lot of films. Uh, well, because it, you have to show that they're they they live close to the earth and they're very right, natural, right? But I'm also thinking of like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, where they they live in this it, what is really an Ewok village, where it's just it's just uh, yeah. rope bridges taking you from every treehouse to every treehouse. Once again, uh, if you're living in nature, how else is that going to work? Right, if you don't course. have rope bridges, you John, know, who wants to go all the way down to the ground? You know, I mean, we're <laughs> we're squirrels, not bears. Uh, <laughs> right. And then, of course, every every town also needs its own half mad seeress who can give enigmatic hints about the future to anyone willing to give them a bit of scenery yeah. to chew. But you know what was nice is she didn't lick anyone's palms. Fair enough. <laughs> so have you got Gosh, one? Gosh, what would mine be? Um, <laughs> I, I think the romanticization of of Ahmed Ibn Fatlan and the place he comes from is mm. silly. Uh, but so too is the 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 Vikings are filthy bastards who live yeah. in mud constantly. I mean, it's, uh-huh. and the you know the the, fo- the I mentioned at the very beginning the, the every time every time in a movie we're introduced to Vikings, they are laughing and yucking it up in a hall, yep. and then someone inevitably is going to get killed yep. within within minutes of that that introduction to establish for us how wild, chaotic, and violent uh-huh. these people are. So is it my favorite? <laughs> I, I chuckle every time it happens. Sure. Sure. No, that's fair. Because yeah. that, that really does follow a formula. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Now, if I go back and watch the film again, I bet I could find a whole bunch of other ones. But I wasn't uh, <laughs> I wasn't prepared for, for that. Uh, let me, since we're doing uh, ridiculous yeah. things, uh, here's something I noticed uh, as we were going through the summary of that. Um, you seem to know a lot of the 13 Warriors' names. Yeah. 
um, as the film ended, uh, I thought to myself, I think I maybe know two or three of their names. <laughs> so my question for you is, how many of the 13 warriors can you name? Do you want me to try it? I have a feeling you've taken substantive notes. Uh, and so I'm, I'm I have notes, you can name but you know what? I'm going to try not to look at my notes. Uh, we have uh, Bullvi, of yes. course. Herger oh, the I gotta, Joyous. I gotta do my little my little yep. marks. So Bullvi. Yeah. Herger the Joyous. I hate that you know their nicknames, but I'm not surprised. Well, I thought you were asking for the nicknames. Uh, I just want their names. Uh, Skeld the Superstitious, I think. I can't confirm that one. Um, Holga the Wise, definitely. Half Time the Fat, definitely. Um, Ekthro the Silent, definitely. Uh. The boy, whose name is, like, uh, Hethelof or Haltoff or something like that. Again, he's never named in the movie. He's only in the credits. So, uh, uh, Ronith. Don't remember Ronith. his nickname. Yeah. There's nobody named Ronith, is there? There is, yeah. He, he's he's one of the first ones to die. Um, okay. Uh, I can't remember his nickname, though. Um, Rethel the Archer. Um... Tony Curran. Uh, <laughs> no, no, that's an actor's name. Uh, uh, Wath. Wath. He's the musician. So you have... Uh, how many have I got so far? You've got... Well, oh, that's really upsetting. I don't think you... I, there's something wrong here. I've got Either you're wrong or... Nine of ten, right? Uh, no, well, I've got... Uh, I've got... I'm not I done. I might have messed up my marks. I'm not done I've got yet. you I'm, at eleven. Am I? Uh... There's uh, uh, Huglak, the Quarrelsome. Yeah. And I only know that one because I have a question for you later on that involves him. <laughs> oh, I, I'm curious about that one as well. Uh, and then there's uh, there's one named Ragnar, but I'm not going to remember. Yes, there is. I, I was shocked that you didn't uh, mention Ragnar right away because yeah. if there's a troop of Vikings, there's going to be a Ragnar. Of course there, there is. There? Of course there is. Uh, yeah. Well, the... the I'm ashamed of you, is what I have to say. Why? Because I know them? But I'm not surprised. Did I miss any, or is that all of them? I don't know. I don't have a list. <laughs> no, For all I know, that's not fair. I mean, those sound about right. I think that's all of them. I may, I may have missed really, one. I knew um, off the top of my head, I could say Bulvai, mm-hmm. Ragnar, uh, Hafden, Herger, and... And um, I know they mentioned, I had the subtitles on, so I know they mentioned Huglak right. is one of the guys that dies right. in that first attack. Yeah, no, the rest of them are almost all just named in the credits. Uh, yeah, yeah. Although, you know, this is the thing. The thing is that the specific way that my brain works, I'm also pretty sure that if you made me, I could name most of the thieves from the movie Krull right now. Most of whom are also never named in the movie. <laughs> I don't know. There's something wrong with you, but we know that. And I would start with I would start with Darrow, who dies in the quicksand. Okay, let's uh, let's Menno, who we've, dies we've already, the slayers. We're, we've already been abusing our listeners <laughs> right, for right, I'm sorry, I'm far sorry. too long. I'm sorry, we don't have time for the theme anyway. <laughs> but do you know all of the the hobbits' uh, companions, all the dwarves? <laughs> oh, absolutely. That's easy. Come on, they rhyme for God's sake. <laughs> I'm not going to go through them all, but yes, of course I can name those. I, I trust that you do. Okay. Uh, so uh, you have another question for me? Yeah. 
Uh, Andy, if if you had to show one minute of this film without explanation to your students, what minute would you choose? Well, what's the purpose of the minute? Uh, you're just showing it to them as part of a class. They're allowed to ask questions, but you're not allowed to what's explain the anything. It's it's a, a, a literature like, class about Anglo-Saxon literature. Okay, because if it's history of the English yeah. language, then I'm going with some of the linguistic stuff from early in the film. Nope. Or nope. if I'm doing Vikings and even Fatbot, I'm going to do the opening scenes with the uh, the burial and the snot in a bowl. Nope. This okay, is but that's presumably Beowulf adjacent. Beowulf you're not, adjacent. You're not no, allowed to explain to you why you're like showing this last it time. Okay. Um, I think there are a lot of good scenes yeah, no, in I, this I one know. to show a student of Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Now the question is: Do I want to make fun of this film, or do I want to show something that I that I appreciate? Right. Hmm. Uh, well, my my gut tells me that it would be really fun to show them the Coast Guard scene, just because <laughs> the the, perf- uh, the perfumed the perfumed boy. woman. Uh, the it's a boy. Messenger boy. <laughs> yeah, and then it's an old man. Um, that's hilarious. Yeah. Um, but I think. If it's an Anglo-Saxon kind of Beowulfy kind of course, I might want to show something of if it's just a minute. I think you could squeeze a minute of of Beowulf when he's poisoned, coming out to fight. Mm-hmm. It's got to be it's got to be that that Viking that that Viking uh, prayer uh-huh. followed by Beowulf fighting with the poison raging through his body. Mm-hmm. I guess it's around that spot that I would show. But I, I'm not saying that that's good stuff. Yeah, no, 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 it's <laughs> I'm fine. I'm just saying that it evokes it evokes the kind of feeling that the mm-hmm. the poem is supposed to evoke in those moments. I guess. Fair enough. But that's because you put me on the spot. That's if fine. I had more time, I might come up with something better. I, what did you, who thought of this question, have to say about it? Um, the duel between Herger and Angus. Ah, uh, um, but why? What does that have to do with Beowulf? I didn't say Beowulf. I said Beowulf adjacent. Beowulf adjacent. I mean, uh, in a saga class, to, it's a fun yeah, one to Yeah, to show. give it context for Anglo-Norse studies, uh, I would absolutely show them that. Mm, I wasn't thinking in that, in, in those terms. If I'm teaching a saga, that's what I said. If it's a yeah, different yeah. class. Oh, no, if it's a saga things, course, absolutely. But I'm just thinking about... That's more you know, saga adjacent. I mean, right. most Anglo-Saxon poems are about Christ. Because so. I have a I have a, a course on Anglo-Scandinavian literature, so I can, uh, I would fit it in. Well, there. convenient for but you, It John. is, absolutely. Uh, do you have any others for me? Or I, have, I have some more questions for you. Uh, yeah, no, I, I do. Um, how about this one? Why Ibn Fatlan? <laughs> why, why build this story out of the very disconnected mm-hmm. tale or historical character of Ahmed Ibn Fatlan? Why is he in the Beowulf story? Um, I mean, you want... I, the only answer I can give, apart from just making one up, is to give the one that Crichton gives whenever he's asked, which was to say that he made a bet with somebody that he could find a way to make Beowulf interesting. Now, I'm going to ignore how insulting that is to those of us, those of us who find Beowulf interesting anyway. Yeah. Uh, but his So this apparently was his way of finding a way into the story, essentially by creating a POV character, right? The the Neo character, right? The character who has sure, to yeah. everything. Sure, yeah. A POV character is always important. Right, but a character who has to have everything explained to him, right? The the Luke Skywalker character in New Hope. It's uh, the Harry Potter position in the first Harry Potter uh, book 
where mm-hmm. everything has to be explained because everything's new. Ibn yeah. Fatlan yeah. has no assumptions about this culture, has no connection to the culture. And so we we have to see things with new eyes through him rather than being tossed into it and being expected to just understand how the culture works. Yeah, I mean, that all makes good sense. Uh, it's just an odd choice to make it th- oh, the I agree. historical character who has a document that he wrote <laughs> that doesn't include this. Right. So why not? You know, it could be any number of sure. uh, newcomer, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, that could be introduced to this. It doesn't have to be a known figure. Right. I, I, there's a, uh, um, a technical term, which I believe is is extracting the urine. Um, uh, this is, you know, Crichton is setting up this fake manuscript, fake translation, yeah, uh, sort of thing and seeding Ibn Fatlan in there is a way of sort of setting the trap, right? That, yeah, you know, this is a real, if you look him up, this is a real guy. Remember this well, I mean, for the, for the novel, for sure. Yeah. I mean, this because, book was written yeah, before so, the internet existed. So, you know, it wasn't as if yeah. people could just like spot it right away. That Ibn Fatlan, if you go to the library, you look him up. Oh, he's got a book. He's done this whole thing where he actually did travel he, up and meet the Rus. Yeah. But it, it provides a kind of plausibility that must have been irresistible to a guy who was trying to create, you know, an accessible and exciting way to get into Beirut. Absolutely, yeah. I think when I, when I put that question, or when I thought of that question, I wasn't thinking of this as a novel written in the 70s. Right. Uh, I, I was thinking of this as a film <laughs> that came out in the 90s, and it just seems like an odd... Right. Interesting, but an odd choice, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so good answer. Eddie, uh, so we talked about those nicknames a few minutes ago. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and all, it, I mean, in a very kind of arbitrary way, every single one of the warriors gets a nickname, right? Uh, Herger the Joyful, Ekthor the Silent, uh, Hugh like the Quarrelsome, which is maybe the best one. They even call uh, Ahmed Little Brother for most of the film. Yeah. Uh, so if you were in this particular group, that just give one word descriptive nicknames for everybody. What's yours? Andy the <laughs> blank. Uh, well, I assume it would be at, at this stage of the game, we might go with Andy the fat. Is there, there's probably. <laughs> no, it's already taken. Already taken? Half done the fat. He um, already exists. That's too bad. Yep. Because I could really embody that Sorry. role. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that would be good. They, they'll call me Andy the boring, I think. There you go. You think they would do that? Yeah. That's, that's, that seems kind of mean. Andy okay. the dull. Aww. You know? Aww. I'm just thinking of things that you've called me. <laughs> <laughs> Those are just my little pet names for you. Uh, <laughs> do you have another question? Uh, do you have a nickname that you'd want to be called? Um, I mean, I'm always going to go with Forkbeard. But assuming that they want to give me a, a personality descriptor, which is what most of them seem to have, except for the fat. Um uh, John the Cranky, John the Irascible. Uh, <laughs> ask my kids; yeah. they'll tell you I'm John the Cranky. Yeah, I, I do have one more question. Yeah, um, and I'm curious what you think of the films. This actually could expand into into two questions. Mm-hmm. What do you think of the film's handling of the 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 two cultures that are coming together here? We have the Islamic culture, yeah, and we have the Scando, Scandinavian Viking, Rus, whatever you want to call it for right. this film. Um, it obviously has some fun with those two cultures yep. coming into contact, but do you feel like it, it handles it respectfully? Uh, do you like what they're doing with this? I mean, 
I, I my immediate response was going to be to call it ham-fisted, and I realized that might be maybe an inappropriate way to explain Islamic culture. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I'm going to say um, I, I think that in both cases, the, this text deals a little bit in what the other culture would think of that culture. Right. Uh, Ahmed comes across as being a little bit more effete and uh, sort of sort of conflict averse and um, sort of earthiness averse than I think uh, an actual representative of that culture would be likely to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the actual historical Ahmed ibn Fadlan, who is appalled by the manners of the Vikings and by their ablutions, was probably a bit fastidious and finicky even by the standards of his time. Sure, uh, but what what's nice about uh, that narrative and why it's one of the reasons it's worth reading is while he does point out how disgusting some mm-hmm. aspects of his encounter might have been, he's also he admires quite a bit, and he makes it clear that they are they do have daily rituals of cleaning, and they do have public rituals of cleaning your hands before meals and that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. thing things that really do fly in the face of what you know what many people, including unfortunately sometimes our students, think mm-hmm. the Middle Ages is about. Right, the yeah. thousand years so, without a bath narrative. Yeah, so I mean, if we if we want to look at it in, it, even though these are broad strokes mm-hmm. in the film, um, it does at least speak to the complexity of each culture, mm-hmm. the difficulty of those those first encounters with new cultures, the kinds of humor that one can find in those those differences, but then a kind of a coming together and a a kind of an understanding uh, <laughs> that they, they they there's a mutual respect uh-huh. as as. You know, Ahmed is leaving. It's goodbye, Arab, and they have a conversation, uh, you know, exchange. We'll say yeah. about the gods, right? So they respect, at least respect each other's differences at that stage, rather than thinking them as odd and stupid. Right? There's but, a respect. But the problem with that, I mean, not the problem, but the the fact is that what that reflects is a very kind of 1990s idea of what cultural sensitivity is. Right? Oh that, yeah. That what we have here is two medieval figures who are perfectly chill. With each other's kind of religious differences, uh, we get a Viking warrior whose first sentence they learns to write is "There is only one God, and Muhammad is his prophet." And right. it, at no point, you know, anywhere in this film is there any suggestion that anybody might have a religious prejudice. Mm-hmm. That's lovely, uh, but it, it yeah. reflects, I think, nineteen nineties sort of wishful thinking rather than a likely medieval reality of the tenth century. Oh, absolutely. So it's it's all very, very broad stroke, mm. um, but I like, I, I think the messaging is nice. Andy, I have a last question for you. Okay, go for it. Uh, Andy, if you were going to create a fake manuscript, what would it be about? Ooh, a fake manuscript. My fake manuscript, since we're on the Beowulf subject, mm-hmm. my fake manuscript would have to be an earlier draft of the Beowulf manuscript. <laughs> Because there's so much debate over the, the dating of Beowulf. Yep. What I want to do is put together a uh, an Old Norse. It's going to be in Old Norse. Sure. Yeah, it has to be. And it's going to date. It's gotta. It's gotta be. Well, the problem with oh. it, it's gotta be. It's gotta be runic carvings. You know what? Even better, somewhere. do it in Gothic A. Oh. It just really confused people. <laughs> That's good. Yeah, no, I think it's going to be. I'm going to have runic car. I'm not going to do a manuscript. I'm going to do car a rune stone. I see a series of rune stones mm-hmm. that are uncovered, be, yeah. and there's even there's even some some pictures in the runic stones. Okay, interesting. In the true Volsunga saga fashion. So we're doing like an eighth century graphic novel. 
Yeah. Well, you know, not as elaborate, but but sure. <laughs> but what all I want to do is is mess with the uh, the dating of Beowulf yeah. discussions. Yeah. Through my fake manuscript. Sure. What about you? Uh, a Thouder featuring a manatee. <laughs> well, that's impossible. <laughs> Why is that impossible? Because there are no manatees up there. Uh, da, 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 da. What, that's your, that's your defense. There'd be, there'd be one. <laughs> <laughs> There's one. Turned out not to be a manatee, a, but a manatee just a very far rotund woman. Uh, no, no. A manatee far afield from its normal haunts. Yes, <laughs> came from Miami and uh, got swept up in the current and somehow survived. Absolutely. All right. Well, I mean, I, I have more questions, but they're all really centered around kind of the the film's handling of Beowulf mm-hmm. and Grendel and well, Grendel's mother. So that brings us right to our uh, our ratings. Yeah. So I think we might as well dive into that. Ratings. Have we anything resembling a plan? Uh, right till we find them, kill them all. So in our ratings section, we attempt to give our opinions in short, short form. Short Short, as short brief. As, we, as we do, as the host of Saga thing. A number um, and but, very few letters. <laughs> yes. But what we're trying to suss out is our opinion of the depiction of Beowulf, the depiction of Grendel, how we feel, how closely we feel the film represents or uh, adapts uh, the Beowulf text. And then finally, uh, how much did we like it? Mm-hmm. How satisfied were we? With the film. So that's our satisfaction category. So, John. Yep. Bullvie. What kind of Beowulf is he for you? You know what? And yeah. why don't you preface this by telling us what you uh, what you gave Beowulf, uh, Lambert's Beowulf. Well, I have to look that up. Um, we want to keep track of so what we thought about these yeah, films as I'm we I'm not going to preface it with this. I'll, I'll say afterward. Uh Okay. This film, I I am actually highly impressed with the Beowulf in this film. Uh, mm. I think he is, he's not a perfect character. He's not a very deep character. And that actually plays into the strength of being like the Beowulf of the poem, who is also a guy who in some ways lacks a depth of character. Right? Yeah. Beowulf is so busy. And I mean this from a narrative level. I don't mean like as a personality, but from a narrative level, he's so busy being the the pinnacle of Anglo-Saxon warriorly virtues that he doesn't really have a great deal of of personal depth as a character. We don't really get, ever get inside of Beowulf, and this and that character in this film is exactly in that place. He's kind of aloof from the other warriors. Uh, you know, he has exchanges with Ibn Fatlam, but they're always very kind of formal exchanges, not cold, but just kind of you know at a distance. Um, He's treated with deference by the other warriors who never get too close to him. Uh, but they're all very clearly kind of focused on him and aware of him. And, you know, his loss is a great loss. That feels very Beowulf to me. So I'm, I'm actually going to give this a very high score. I'm going to say that. Really? Um, I think this is, uh, it, I'm going to give it an eight. 
You're giving that Beowulf an yes. eight. You know, when I think of Beowulf, this is what I think of. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. Uh, just out of curiosity, what did you give Lumbert? Uh I gave him a four. A four. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, very interesting. I gave Lumbert a three. Yes, you did. Um, Where are you on this I guy? don't think... I don't think that there's that much more depth to this Beowulf or interest. No, in there this. isn't. I agree. That's that's why I gave it a high score. <laughs> but that's contradictory. <laughs> um, it's it's deeply problematic for me. Um, I don't find this Beowulf interesting mm-hmm. in the slightest. Um, I think he's on the edges of the screen. Now, that's not Bullvi's fault. That is right. the, That's the role that he's mm-hmm. been cast to play. Is he an interesting Beowulf that I want to see on screen? I think you're right that he captures a certain kind of essence of the poem's character in that he is somewhat separate from everything else. He's different. Um, He's analytical in a way that I think Beowulf is analytical. And he's also heroic in a way that that Beowulf is heroic. But we don't really see this Beowulf do jack squat other than (laughs) cut the head off Grendel's mother and give a quick slice to to mm-hmm. the horned king or whatever his name is. He doesn't do enough for me to care about him as a hero. He's boring. He is a shade of what Beowulf is supposed to be. So he's, to me, I give him a four. He's just one better than Lambert's Beowulf. Fair enough. That's not, that's not, a, that's not, I'm not going to argue with that. That's fine. It's an interesting contrast that you yeah. would give it an eight. But Again, I think, I think we're, you don't I think we're like applying Beowulf. a different standard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's boring. Fair enough. Uh, uh, Grendel. Grendel, yeah. Grendel, Grendel. How do you rate this version of Grendel, Andy? Well, the <laughs> I believe I was very <laughs> I was very displeased with the Lambert's Beowulf yeah. version of Grendel. We, we both gave that one a one. Yeah, yeah. This one's better in terms of what they're attempting to do. I like the idea of taking the concept of Grendel, who is a an abstract psychological horror, and rooting it in some form of reality, which other Beowulf films are going to play with. I don't think it's terribly successful here, especially because there's a contradictory message that this film gives. Is Grendel the Vendels, or is Grendel the horned warlord that leads the vendals Mm -hmm. the son of who's described as the son of the 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 mother who is somehow very young woman who has this older son i don't know i don't i don't really like it i don't think it works as well as i would like it to i see the potential in it because i like this idea of this old tribe that was on the land that is pushing back against hrothgar that whole thing that comes up over and over again Andy, I, I, I invite you to consider the idea of a brief, <laughs> brief. Oh, discussion. I was trying to explain myself. I gave him a three. I don't really like it. <laughs> Much better. That's brief. Um, I actually went with a two. Uh, ah, I, so I, you don't like it for a, almost exactly the reasons that you just stated. Um, but for also for me, just the you know there is that element of I, while I appreciate the the realism of the body types on display. Uh, the utterly unimpressive, uh, just the 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 size, the possession, the sort of the the, the self possessiveness of these Grendel, they're not impressive figures. They're not intimidating figures for the most part. No, I was 
honestly surprised that I was supposed to have thought they were bears. It was they were very clearly guys smeared with gray makeup wearing bear hats um, for yeah. me the entire film. I, I just th- there wasn't anything particularly scary or intimidating about them. No. Too. If you're going to make them the eaters of the dead, we need to see them eating some dead in some pretty horrific ways. Also a good point. Um, there apparently is a, a version of this film that was never released where there's much more explicit pictures of gnawed corpses and things yeah. at that farmhouse. I think you could remake this film today and make it pretty pretty raw mm-hmm. and, and a little bit more frightening. And I'll, hopefully the action would be better as well. <laughs> But it wouldn't have that that schlock factor that 90s films so often have. Yeah, that's for sure. Uh, all right. Andy, uh, last time we did this, we actually uh, skipped something that I think is important. There are, you know, there's kind of a, a, a triad of important figures in uh, in this story, or at least in the various versions that got put on film. Um, we skipped Grendel's mother, Andy. Ooh, uh, I feel like we well, should probably for that matter, we, that. we would skip the dragon as as well if you talk right. About but of course, triad, in, in so many of the films, the dragon doesn't appear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which so that would be a problem. That. But we did have the 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 worm <laughs> in this one. We uh, but I think there's going to be some really interesting conversations to be had about the various Grendel's mothers that we're going to meet. Uh, so that's I, right. I think we should yeah. rectify that. Uh, Okay. So give us a twofer. What's your rating of Grendel's mother in this film? And what's your rating of Tanya Roberts in Space Beowulf? Well, let's go with the the the, the latter first. Um, I'm going to go with uh, in Lombard's Beowulf, Tanya Roberts. Mm-hmm. I'll give her a... I, I'm going to give her a five. Okay. Because I think she represents some things that are worth playing with, with Grendel's mother character. I think it's an interesting take on Grendel's mother, even though I don't particularly like it as much as I like the troll wife figure. But I'll give, a, we, we talked about her a mm-hmm. bit and what she's doing. Yep. Uh, although I have watched the, that those parts of the film again, and I think we oversold bet you her a little bit. <laughs> I think we oversold her a little bit. Oh yeah, I that's think fair. It's, I think it's everything you know, about that film is so shallow. Exactly. Well, I think the thing is that, you know, it's, it's, in a in in the depth of the filth that she's surrounded with, she shines out the brighter. <laughs> she doesn't really though. Well, but I mean, honest. when you see her in isolation, you definitely do not see that same brightness. I think what happens is in preparing for something like this, we overthink it a little bit and then convince ourselves no, that there's more going us? on than there there is. So um, that said, uh, Grendel's mother in this film gets a one. Uh, I cannot imagine a worse take on Grendel's mother. Than what we see here, it it is a swing and a miss. They're they're not even trying to do anything with her. <laughs> it's she could almost get a zero for not being there. Uh-huh. I'm gonna say I'm close to you on both of these. Um, I'm gonna give Tanya Roberts a six, uh, slightly above average. slightly above average, and that's only because that as we said last time, that take on Grendel's mother becomes influential with yeah. later interpretations of the character. This is the origin of the sexy Grendel's mom thing that's going to help to shape a lot of the later filmic adaptations of Beowulf. So I have to yeah. give her a, I have to give her a modicum of credit for that. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I agree with you. It's a very average performance, but yeah. I'll give her an but extra it, like, point for that. Yeah, and like we said, it um, is picking up some of the scholarly mm-hmm. conversations about Grendel's mom and her interactions with Beowulf being 
pseudo-sexual, mm-hmm. the Freudian stuff. That's present, especially in the times that, you know, right. these films are made. Uh, so, yeah. Grendel's mother in credit this film, I'm going to say right off the bat, we're going to go with the Grendel's mother that we actually have, not the one who would exist in the other version of the film where there's the, the older mother. Uh, this one, uh, I'm interested in the potential of the of the makeup job, the the kind of uh, sort of somewhere in between sort of feral weasel character and sort of serpentine kind of makeup that they did with her. Um, the fighting with kind of poison daggers is an interesting take because we really haven't dealt with poison yet in the film, and that's kind of a new a new wrinkle for her. Um, and then there's the fact that she's absolutely boring and a non-entity in the film. Uh, so I agree with you there, absolutely. Um, I'm I'm going to give her a two just because I find the poison dagger thing an interesting weapon. Okay. Uh, but other than that, I absolutely really agree. Dagger, she though. is a non-entity. It's um, on her finger like a claw. Well, whatever it is, it's a little knife. Uh, it's yeah. called a punch dagger if you want. Uh, but it's uh, it's absolutely she is a a very poor Grendel's mother, uh, and her presence in the film is almost negligible. So, it's, you it's know what? I'm like actually talking forgot. myself down to a one here. Uh. <laughs> yeah, they, they they completely forgot that they had these monsters they're supposed to be building towards. Yeah, and then they just threw them in. Yeah, quick. I so yeah. Ah, boy, very disappointing. Yeah, you know what? I you know what? I've talked myself down to a one. I'm going with the one. <laughs> It's pretty Good. bad. We're not going to see a worse well one. Well deserved. <laughs> okay. So um, then we only have two things left. Yeah. And this has to do with our kind of our take on the films, yep. the film as a whole. Uh, we start with Fidelity to Beowulf. Mm-hmm. Um, as a film that is adapt an adaptation of Beowulf, mm-hmm. though it is an adaptation of a novel that is playing with Beowulf, mm-hmm. um, does it do a good job? What score would you give it? Uh, so for Fidelity to Beowulf, Beowulf, a poem that famously, as Tolkien argued, is a work of art incorporating uh, a mythology, a uh, uh, personifications of the kind of the natural realm and the, the dangers of the, uh, the unknown and the supernatural. Um, what do I think about this film's portrayal of that? Hmm. <laughs> um, it does a pretty poor job of that. Uh, much fun as I have with this film, and I do have a lot of fun with this film, uh, as an actual adaptation of Beowulf, as a fidelity to the poem Beowulf, uh, I can't give this very high marks. Uh, it's it's hard to imagine taking a, a stronger swerve away from the original poem and still being considered a Beowulf adaptation. Um uh, Grendel is now a bunch of bare skin wearing Neanderthals. Uh, Grendel's mother is a complete non-entity and three seconds worth of challenge for Beowulf, where in the poem she very nearly kills him. The dragon turns out to be nothing but a bunch of guys riding in formation carrying torches. Everything that makes the original poem uh, spectacular and supernatural and more than just a story about a guy who can lift heavy things uh, has been systematically eradicated from this version of the story. Uh, it's interesting. It's fun. And I think there's some, there are some ph- philosophical points that are still retained from the poem and that are interesting. 
but I can't give it more than a two. What? A two? Yep. For what fidelity to the poem, two. Beowulf? Yep. What did you give Lombard's Beowulf, John? One. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Oh, no, wait, that's um, not I true. That's not pra- true. I gave it a three. I just looked it up. Wow. So, so Lombard's one- Beowulf is more faithful <laughs> than this one. I'm sticking with it. <laughs> you're, an, you're a fool. Okay. Yeah. If you are looking for a point-for-point poetic interpretation of the monsters, this film fails miserably. But if you are looking for a film that that is recognizably Beowulf, (laughs) this film hits far more points than than Lambert's. (laughs) There are so many scenes throughout that you'd be like, this is that scene, this is that scene. Lines are directly taken from the text. That's not what I was asked, though. I was not asked, does it take things from the poem. I was asked for its fidelity to the poem. Fidelity? Scene for, there's some scene-for-scene scene fidelity here that I think is at least noteworthy. Mm-hmm. Am I giving it a high score? No. I'm not stupid. <laughs> but this is more recognizably Beowulf and and captures some of the... It doesn't capture any of the <laughs> concepts at all. <laughs> but if you're just looking for basic plot points, you know, they're there. Yeah. Um. So I'm giving this one a five compared to Lambert's four. Uh-huh. Not a lot better, in other words. Well, it's because it's not. Yeah. It, it's not really Beowulf, but it does. I, I love yeah. the nods to the poem that are there. <laughs> I think those are great. So, uh, yeah, no, that's 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 fine. That's fair. Um. I, uh, yeah. So for our last question, uh, this is just how much did we enjoy this film? Uh, yeah. completely divorced from our, we're taking off our scholarly caps for a moment. Um, uh, what is our level of satisfaction with this film? Yeah. And do you actually kind of like it unironically? Mm-hmm. Why don't you go first this time? Uh, I think my answer can be fairly quick. Um, I see the potential in the film. I think it's a, it's a goddamn mess. And <laughs> I, I think Ebert hit it pretty on the head with mm-hmm. his his review. I would score it higher than he did. I think there are some things that are enjoyable about the film. But is it a good film that I want to watch again? For me, not really. Mm-hmm. This does not strike that chord um, for me. I don't find it all that entertaining. If I had to choose watching this or uh, Backflip and Beowulf um, again, I'll watch Backflip and Beowulf again because I think it's hilarious. <laughs> I get some satisfaction out of that piece of garbage. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this I think, is just a sloppy Hollywood film that's supposed to be an action film but doesn't quite hit that. It tries to be a little deep. It's not really. Mm-hmm. It all kind of falls flat for me. It's a it's a Four. Hmm. Interesting. That is a uh, that is that feels harsh. Uh, it is harsh, but, but uh, is, is, I, I didn't enjoy it. I My son didn't enjoy it either. Uh, I'm gonna say I'm kind of in the same boat as you in that I I think if I had to make a choice between on an average day watching Space Beowulf again or watching this again. Four days out of seven, I would choose Space Beowulf uh, because it is ridiculous and I appreciate ridiculous. 
this movie tries to be not ridiculous and is ridiculous anyway. Yeah. Uh, I think, you know, where Space Beowulf takes big, strange swings and misses, uh, this film thinks it's doing kind of the safe Hollywood thing and then misses. Uh, and that's, while it's still fun to watch, it's a little bit less compelling for me as a kind of rewatch, even though I will say I've watched this film many times for reasons that escape me every time I've watched it. Uh, but I'm going to give it a six, which is one less than I gave uh, Lambert's Beowulf, which I gave a mm. seven to because honestly, if I were flipping channels and Lambert's Beowulf were on, I would end up watching it. Yeah. This eh, depends on what else is on. I mean, if it's in a scene that you like, you might hang sure, around. But I might stick around for a scene. Thing. And yeah. I really enjoy, I do really enjoy uh, the character of Herger the Joyful. He's a fun character. He brings a lot to the to the story. Sure. But honestly, he's the only part of it that is I mean, there's a lot of potential compelling. in the film. I think yes. it, it would be worth, uh, you know, Hollywood likes to reboot things. This one would be worth another swing, I think. Oh, boy. It'd be so painful, though. The modern... The 2023 version of this film would be just painful to watch. It would be so dark. Yeah, that's it just would, it. It would be, that's but at it. least it wouldn't be a Spaniard playing a, a guy from Baghdad. You that's, know? Again, that's part of that '90s cheese that I can just I can really like roll with. Yeah, yeah. All right. There All we right. Go. So, what do you say? Are we ready to put this film to bed until the next time I decide I want to watch it? Uh, again, you just said you wouldn't probably not, want not to watch right it. Not right away. I mean, the mood strikes okay. me about once every five years or so. Uh-huh. Uh huh. What about you? Are you gonna put this one to heavy rotation at the Fringer household now? Uh, well, I think I've scratched that itch for the foreseeable future. <laughs> uh, I took what was it? It's uh, uh, <laughs> twenty-four years. It's taken me twenty-four <laughs> years to watch it again. So uh, you know, so we'll, we'll make not. we'll make our plans for twenty forty-seven. Right, yeah. Uh, well, great. If, if we're around. <laughs> uh, but let us know whether you've seen The 13th Warrior and what you thought of it. I understand completely that uh, a lot of people really enjoy this film. Yeah. I'm sorry if I'm not in that camp. Well, I'm especially curious about how people find this movie. Uh, it's it's developed borderline cult status nowadays. And I, I'm not sure how that happened, honestly. Uh, there mm. are so many movies that deserve cult status, and I'm just not sure how this one got it. Uh, it's I, too boring. I, I know when I was trying to read up on the film, the filming history of this thing, I found a lot of blogs and reddits and videos about this movie. Yeah, uh, much more so than the Lambert Wolf that we covered last time, which I of course, which is so much more deserving said, of attention. Exactly, it's so much more kind of you know embraceably ludicrous than this film. But this movie did make more than a few thousand dollars at the box office, so <laughs> people have actually heard of it, That's, and it's got a, yeah. a legitimate star in it. Yeah, harsh but fair. Uh, well. If you enjoy, ouch, uh, I just, I sorry, I just registered what you said about Christopher Lambert there. <laughs> uh, if you did enjoy listening to this, uh, first of all, you're a very kind and patient person and we don't deserve you. That's uh, for sure. But, uh, this, these are supposed to be, I think, oh my God. in typical we us fashion. short episodes. Uh, second. But then uh, John can't shut up. So. If, oh, wow. I think if we go back and listen to who's saying what, when, uh, you're probably right. Uh, but if if uh, if you could drop us a review somewhere at the internet crossroads, we'd appreciate it. Yeah, this is something that we do for fun. Uh, we don't have an advertising budget or yeah. any budget at no. all. I mean, I'm out of pocket for the stuff I'm drinking right now. That's right. 
Uh, and I am uh, I am expecting kickbacks from the film companies to start rolling in any time now as we bring new audiences to these things. Great. Or maybe a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Well, while you're waiting to uh, Scrooge McDuck your basement into a gold peace pool, it's time to go. Yeah. Uh, we're going to be back soon with our regular Saga Thing podcast. And in the near future with another episode of What a Movie. Uh, next time mm-hmm. we're watching... Uh, Andy, Nick, what are we watching? <laughs> Well, I mean, it depends on how far we're willing to push this gag of watching all the Beowulves in a row. Ah, pretty far, I think. Well, then, uh, in that case, we are fresh out of 1999 Beowulf movies, so Mm -hmm. we're going to have to move ahead several years to 2005's Beowulf and Grendel. Ooh, this is the one with Gerard Butler as Beowulf and Sarah Polly as a witch with an unusual and unhealthy interest in the monster Grendel. That's right. Great. Uh, All right, we'll pick it up there. Until then, go watch The 13th Warrior. Or don't. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.